the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 17 years ago, 9-11. It's unbelievable. It's been 17 years. And you know what? Most people have forgotten about it already. Mm. Most people have forgotten what we should have learned, and it should have been ingrained. Uh, it, it has not been. Uh, although later on in the show, we're going to talk about uh, America first, understanding the Trump doctrine and how what happened on 9-11, a lot of his doctrine uh, has a lot to uh, be said about 9-11, why he does what he does. So we'll, we'll learn about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, when you talk to people, do people talk much about 9-11 to you anymore? Does anybody ever bring it up? Mm-mm. Not really. I mean, it's just Only when they're trashing Trump. I think about it. Uh, I'm a member of the Sons of American Legion, and the mm-hmm. American Legion has a uh, memorial service once a year in Cabot, which they did have today, and I missed it today. And uh, and we and during uh, different times, then uh, it's brought up at the Sons of American Legion, so they remember it. You know what? I hear more than it. I hear. I want to. You know, they want to talk about. It. I hear. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to remember it. I don't want to, you know. It's too painful. History want, will repeat itself. If you do not pay attention to history, if we do not teach history, it will repeat itself. I think some of like England and London and some of those countries overseas need to learn something from 9-11 and pay a little bit of attention to border control. Yep, I agree with that. Well, today the president was uh, at the 9 9- 11 memorial service he gave a speech let's hear what he had to say thank you very much ryan so beautiful we're gathered together on these hallowed grounds to honor the memory of nearly 3,000 souls who were murdered on this day 17 years ago we're here to pay solemn tribute to the 40 passengers and crew members on Flight 93 who rose up, defied the enemy, took control of their destiny, and changed the course of history. Today we mourn their loss, we share their story, and we commemorate their incredible valor. On September 11, 2001, a band of brave patriots turned the tide on our nation's enemies and joined the immortal ranks of American heroes. At this memorial on this sacred earth, in the field beyond this wall, and in the skies above our heads, we remember the moment when America fought back Melania and I are grateful to be joined for today's ceremony by Governor Tom Wolf and Governor Mark Schweiker. I also want to thank the members of Congress in attendance, 
Senator Bob Casey, Congressman Lou Barletta, Keith Rofkus, Bill Schuster, and along with the president of the families of Flight 93, Gordon Felt. We're also joined by members of the National Park Service, along with firefighters, first responders, and incredible people from law enforcement. These are truly great people. Some of you here today answered the call and raced to this field 17 years ago. You fill our hearts with pride, and I want to thank you on behalf of our country. Thank you very much. Most importantly, to the family members of Flight 93, today all of America wraps up and joins together. We close our arms to help you shoulder your pain and to carry your great, great sorrow. Your tears are not shed alone, for they are shared grief with an entire nation. We grieve together for every mother and father, sister and brother, son and daughter who was stolen from us at the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, and here in this Pennsylvania field. We honor their sacrifice by pledging to never flinch in the face of evil and to do whatever it takes to keep America safe. Seventeen years ago, your loved ones were among the 40 of Flight 93, the 40 passengers and crew members on board the 8 a.m. United Airlines flight from Newark to San Francisco. They were men and women from every background. They were young people returning from visiting family, moms and dads on business trips, and friends going and coming from birthdays and weddings. They boarded the plane as strangers, and they entered eternity, linked forever, as true heroes. Soon after takeoff, Flight 93 was hijacked by evil men bent on terror and conquest. Passengers and crew members began using their phones to call home. They learned that two planes had already crashed into the World Trade Center in New York City. Immediately, those on board Flight 93 started planning a response. Sandy Bradshaw, a flight attendant, called her husband and told him they were in the back of the plane preparing hot water to throw onto the hijackers. Passenger Jeremy Glick explained the plan to his wife and said, stay on the line, I'll be back. The passengers and crew members came together, took a vote, and they decided to act. 
At that moment, they took their fate and America's fate back into their own hands. In the last 20 minutes, many placed their final calls home, whispering those eternal words, I love you. Some said the Lord's Prayer, and then they bravely charged the cockpit. They attacked the enemy. They fought until the very end, and they stopped the forces of terror and defeated this wicked, horrible, evil plan. Flight 93 crashed yards from where we stand, just 20 minutes flying time from the United States Capitol. Through their sacrifice, the 40 saved the lives of countless Americans, and they saved our capital from a devastating strike. In the days after the attack, tens of thousands of firefighters, police officers, and recovery workers traveled to New York and Arlington to crawl through the rubble and search for survivors. There were prayer vigils, memorials, and charity drives all across our nation. Here in Shanksville, many of you raised up the first memorial, a wooden cross, a chain-linked fence, mementos and tributes pouring in, and dozens and dozens of American flags. A piece of America's heart is buried on these grounds, but in its place has grown a new resolve to live our lives with the same grace and courage as the heroes of Flight 93. This field is now a monument to American defiance. This memorial is now a message to the world. America will never, ever submit to tyranny. Since September 11th, nearly five and a half million young Americans have enlisted in the United States Armed Forces. Nearly 7,000 service members have died facing down the menace of radical Islamic terrorism. Today, we also think of the more than 200,000 service members now serving overseas. And we think of every citizen who protects our nation at home, including our state, local, and federal law enforcement. These are great Americans. These are great heroes. We honor and thank them all. As Commander-in-Chief, I will always do everything in my power 
to prevent terrorists from striking American soil. Here with us today is Dorothy Garcia Blockler. Her husband, Sonny, was one of the passengers on Flight 93. On September 11th, 2001, just over a month after their 32nd wedding anniversary, Sonny was on his way back from a business meeting. He called Dorothy, who he loved so much, called her on the plane and uttered her name before the line went dead silent. In the days after the attack, Dorothy told the investigators there was only one thing she wanted from this field, her husband's wedding ring. They would know it by the inscription etched inside. All my love, it said, followed by the number 8269, the date of their anniversary. The officers, great people, promised to try. But in this field of records, it seemed certainly impossible. Dorothy began to pray, and she asked her friends to do the same. Days went by, then months. Still no ring. A week before Christmas, on December 19th, she heard a knock at the door. Two officers were standing with a really beautiful, to her, she saw it was so beautiful, she knew what was happening a beautiful, small, white box. Inside it was a wallet, a luggage tag, a driver's license, a small bag with the wedding ring inscribed with those three precious words, all my love. Those words echo across this field. And those words tell the story of 40 men and women who gave all their love for their families, their country, and our freedom. To Dorothy and to every family here today, America will never forget what your loved ones did for all of us. Earlier this week, you dedicated the final part of this memorial, the Tower of Voices. Standing at 93 feet tall, the Tower of Voices is now the first structure visitors see when they come to this now sacred ground. It will hold 40 beautiful chimes that ring throughout these fields, each a unique note but all in perfect harmony. Each time we hear those chimes playing in the wind, we will remember the 40. We will remember their faces, their voices, their stories, their courage, and their love. And we will remember that free people are never at the mercy of evil.
because our destiny is always in our hands. America's future is not written by our enemies. America's future is written by our heroes. As long as this monument stands, as long as this memorial endures, brave patriots will rise up in America's hours of need, and they, too, will fight back. Seventeen years ago, 40 incredible men and women showed the whole world that no force on earth will ever conquer the American spirit. We treasure their memory. We cherish their legacy. And we ask God to forever bless the immortal heroes of Flight 93. Thank you. God bless you. God bless the families, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you very much. All right, that was the president from earlier today. As you could tell from what he was speaking of, he was in Pennsylvania where the Flight 93 crashed when, uh, as he did so well uh, today, told the story of that they did everything in their power to try to take back that plane they kept that plane, from what uh, experts say, uh, the uh, terrorists were flying it towards the Capitol. And so uh, they kept that from happening. I was watching Fox News as we were sitting here, and one of the passengers uh, on that plane was a three-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand those kinds of people. To be honest with you, I don't understand. They, they, they wanted to kill innocent people they didn't go after military i understand going after military people Mm -hmm. we sign up for that but i don't understand people who just willingly go out and kill innocent civilians those people had nothing to do basically other than they lived in this country uh with what we were doing here in this country and just a sad sad day to remember just a sad day you know uh, so many times people say that all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, the people on that plane did something. Yes, they did. They, they did what did they something. could do. Yes, they saved, Let's they roll, saved lives, and, and uh, by, they gave their lives to save others. Right. I mean, th- th- there was kind of bad policy for the, with the airlines. Is basically you've got to submit to terrorists, and that changed in like 45 minutes. I mean, the U.S. government, had, I guess it was the U.S. government, the Aviation Commission or whoever it was, had had bad policy and americans changed it in in just a few minutes because they had to yeah i think uh, many of us remember all of the hijackings that happened in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s and nothing was was done now they, they did, weren't on they killed missions. they killed a few uh of those te- of those terrorists the israelis killed a lot of those terrorists but i i you know we tended to fly to Cuba or wherever they wanted to fly to uh, and let them go. But uh, 
And it was on this day uh, that we found out and we would have known sooner if the FBI and CIA had been able to kind of converse with each other. They couldn't at that time uh, and share intelligence. But there had been talk uh, in Europe, in fact, of using planes as weapons. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were planning on doing it. They, they, that had always been. From what I've heard from a lot of the uh, computers and stuff they found when they killed bin Laden, uh, he, not even he had any idea that they would be as successful uh, as they were mm-hmm. on, on 9-11. I mean, we got caught completely with our pants down. I mean, there's no, that was, there was no different than Pearl Harbor. This goes to show that the Pearl Harbor happened like that. Never thought that the Japanese would attack, and, and they did. Uh, we never thought that uh, these people would attack because, hey, they're nothing but you know camel jockeys and all the rest of the things that people mm-hmm. used to say about them. And, I'm sorry uh, we trained them. Uh, yeah, look at yeah. Now they did. Well, bin they Laden did, did, did. Yeah, Bin Laden. Of course, we we helped them during the time that he was in Afghanistan against the Russians. We. We, uh, we helped them out as far as training them. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, we got more to talk. We've got uh, the vice president, some things he had to say, and General Mattis, some things he had to say, plus Carl Rove reminisces about what was going on in the Bush White House. All that's coming your way here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Now, we're taking this uh, first hour to remember 17 years ago. It's only right that we remember and, and a lot of people say, well, it makes me feel bad. It should make you feel bad. Uh, it, 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 you know, it was a terrible, terrible day. And it's very important that we remember that it happened. I remember where I was. I was sitting in the studios of another radio station. We didn't have a, a television in there so that you could watch what was going on. But we had heard that uh, a plane had struck the World Trade Center. We went to ABC News and uh, just stayed on it for the next several hours here's the news find out what's going on right now all right back with you dave ellswick show the president speaking uh horton's orthotics and prosthetics uh are completely uh, demoing and adding to their original location at 12th street making it into a state-of-the-art facility latest technology for prosthetics and orthotics and they're doing all of this because they pride themselves on their patient relationships. They pride themselves at helping people with prosthetics reach uh, the mobility that they want to reach. As far as you want to try to reach, they will work with you to be able to reach that place. Uh, they, they help people uh, to the best of their ability for them to reach their best abilities. And remember, after this has been brought up, to its state-of-the-art uh, uh, ways uh, it's going to be six locations now uh, for Hortons. You got Little Rock, North Little Rock, Bryant, Conway, Fort Smith, and Searcy. All of them ready to do exactly what Hortons Orthotics and Prosthetics uh, plans to do and promises to do, and that's providing a lifetime of support. So the vice president was at the Pentagon today. He was speaking there, and uh, here are just a few moments of his speech. These heroes saved countless lives. Nearly all the survivors who were recovered from the rubble that day were rescued within the first 30 minutes. 
after the attack. And even in the midst of the attack on this department, the men and women of the Pentagon maintained continuity of operations of America's armed forces spread across the globe. It was a testament to their courage, their resilience. It was the Pentagon's finest hour. In the days and weeks that followed, the search and recovery efforts continued. I witnessed it firsthand when I came here to these grounds on September 12, 2001. I saw the enormous black gash in the side of this edifice of our national defense. I saw the rescue and recovery personnel working diligently through the debris. I'll never forget what I saw that day. I saw heroism. I saw strength. There were firefighters, nurses, members of our armed forces, law enforcement. There were volunteers and Pentagon personnel all working together in the hopes that there might be more to rescue in the work to recover and to begin to rebuild not just this building but to rebuild and re-strengthen our nation. And as they worked, just as it does today, our flag was still there. The stars and stripes were hung spontaneously from this west wall as a sign of America's strength and our commitment to freedom. We honor the fallen by remembering them. But as Secretary Mattis said, we also honor them by ensuring that we do everything in our power as a nation to prevent the evil of radical Islamic terrorism from ever reaching our shores again. Even before the smoke cleared and the fires had put out, Americans began to answer the call to step forward to serve this nation. And they did so by the millions. The lines outside recruiting stations across this country reached around the block in big cities and small towns. It's amazing to think in 17 years since that day, nearly 5.5 million Americans volunteered to serve in the armed forces of the United States. Those courageous men and women turned a day of tragedy into a triumph of freedom. That was the vice president today at the commemoration uh, at the Pentagon. Uh, before he spoke, General Mattis spoke. We've got about a minute of that for you, and here's what he had to say. The fire and smoke in New York City over a Pennsylvania meadow 
and in this very building, as innocent people from 91 countries were murdered on our soil. Many of those countries represented by the foreign dignitaries who join us here today. We remember the bravery and sacrifice of those who fell here in America and then on far-flung battlefields. We salute the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Coast Guardsmen and Marines who nailed our colors to the mast, giving their last full measure of devotion, declaring proudly that Americans do not scare. And we followed to the end of the earth those who sought to break our spirit. Together with the families of the fallen, we remember all that is good, all that is true, and all that is beautiful about those we have lost. And if we remember them, if we honor them by living as they would have us live, if we in the Department of Defense do our best every day to protect America's promise to the world, then we keep our promise to them and to ourselves and to future generations. That guy is a speaker. <laughs> That's right. I like Mattis. You know, they call him, uh, you know, a monk, the warrior monk. Mm-hmm. He's uh you don't take no guff from enemy, you know. He'll uh, he's going to give his full measure as far as that's concerned. He only talks when he has something to say, and he carries a big stick. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. He's, that's exactly right. You know, hey, he he can back it up with the stick. Yeah, he really he's uh, he's good. I I like listening to him. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our last uh, small part. Uh, that I want to play for you. What was going on in the Bush White House 17 years ago? Carl Rove shares those memories. Uh, we'll have that when we return. Uh, it's Dave Ellswick's show. Power panel is here. They're going to have things to say before it's over with today. But it only makes sense that we spend this very beginning of today remembering what happened 17 years ago. Dave Ellswick's show back in a moment. All right, President Bush, of course, 17 years ago, was at the, he was in Florida at that elementary school when he spoke then. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. Okay. And they criticized him because he didn't jump right up and go do something and panic everybody in the room. I yeah. remember that very strongly. And just listen, if you listen back to that, I'm not going to play it again, but when he says a terrorist attack, you hear the audible gasps in the background and now that you listen again and i'm listening to it on the radio i can hear how tight his voice you oh, can tell yeah. he is extremely stressed i would be stressed i don't remember hearing that in his voice when i heard it yeah. live when it happened you know the thing that sticks out in my mind do we have this the, the piece when he's at ground zero russ when he says that uh, the enemy's going to hear from us soon Mm-hmm. Now that that's probably the moment that I remember the best uh, of what happened uh, at at nine eleven, and and you know what's sad is that look, it's been seventeen years, and people are still suffering. Look at all those people who are still sick and are still getting sick. <laughs> From, from all, all the of the stuff they're breathing in, and stuff and that they breath, they they were breathing in when they were digging people out of the rubble. Huge number of first responders have cancer now, and they yeah. believe that it's tied back to the toxic um, air 
basically well, from you when those towers know. went down. Did they, was there asbestos there and everything? I mean, if oh, there was gosh, asbestos, you know. it was you know. it, it, that, that not good for you at all. I'm just telling you. All kinds well, I mean, of chemical, all, all kinds of, of stuff. I mean, who all kinds of glue they use in the flooring, all kinds mm-hmm. of, I and mean, just just everything that can. Hey, the can people that was doing yeah, they that was sacrificed. Well, hey, they didn't care. You just did the right thing. That's right. You do the right things, and you take care of the consequences later. Yeah. And, and then I watch New York and I watch even our federal government fight against helping people uh, that are suffering uh, from that time. And, and that should not be the case. But, hey, this, this is the same people who fought against Agent Orange and from Vietnam uh, for 40 years. You know, I mean, unbelievable. I just want to jump in and say those are the first responders that go toward the problem yeah they're running not into away. the problem they're running not in away from every it. time you're running away that's right with no While thought about away, themselves they're running into so keep that in mind all right we've got uh, this segment and this is the last segment we'll play uh from uh, today uh, carl rove sharing memories of 9-11 from inside the bush administration if you could share with us your thoughts and reflections 17 years later well, uh, I, every every like like Congressman P. King, every memory comes flooding back for me um, at about eight forty eight, eight forty nine, just a couple of minutes after the first aircraft hit the World Trade Center. My assistant Susan Ralston called me. I was standing uh, outside Emma Booker Elementary School, about ten feet away from the president, as he shook hands. And Susan said, "A plane has flown into the World Trade Center. We don't know if it's jet or prop, commercial or private." And I uh, went over and told the president and. Uh, sort of cocked an, an eye and sort of like find out more. Condi Rice called a few minutes more, a few minutes later with the same sketchy information. But that began a day that I'll never forget. And, of course, he was reading to children in that classroom. The president was in Florida that morning. And then it was a second time um, that he had to be told that another plane had struck. And what happened then? Well, uh, Andy Card went in and told the president. I, I, I remember at the time, Andy approached the door separating the uh, staff hold where we were from the classroom where the president was reading. And when Andy got to the door, he stopped. And, 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 and at the time, it seemed like an eternity. It was actually probably just a matter of a second or two. But I remember him stopping at the door. I didn't know until much later, a couple of years ago, in fact, that the reason is when he got to the door, he realized that he needed to be able to say something to the president that wouldn't lead to any questions. And so there's the famous photograph of him saying to the president, uh, whispering, uh, second plane has uh, hit uh, the World Trade Center. America is at war. And a few minutes later, the president had to make a decision. Should he sort of immediately stand up and walk out of the room or should he wait until the little reading exercise came to a close? He thought it was within a minute or two of, 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 of finishing. It wasn't. But he sat there, listened, and then excused himself. And I've known him a long time. We met when we were in our 20s, so I, I can read his moods. And when he came into the staff hold, it was really it was unusual because it was like cold as ice and steel. And I remember exactly what he said. He said, we're at war. Give me the director of the FBI and the vice president. And there are two special phones in the staff hold. And we immediately jumped on them. We got a hold of Bob Mueller, the director of the FBI. But we couldn't get the vice president at that moment because, unbeknownst to us, two Secret Service agents had burst into his West Wing office, grabbed him underneath the arms, and were literally running down the hallway of the West Wing towards a secret entrance to the PIOC, the President's Emergency Operations Center, the bunker underneath the South Lawn of the White House. 
but uh, it it uh, it was an amazing moment, and uh, you know I, I spent much of the day with him for weird reasons. Um, we, we we were about this time during the, the he, we, he was sitting at a table, and this was a classroom, and it, the adult furniture had largely been cleared out. So this was a table meant for kindergartners, and he was sitting in one of those little chairs, and he had a sharpie, and he was writing down what he was going to say to the country. And Dan Bartlett and Arian Fleischer and I were talking to him, and Eddie Morenzel the head of the Secret Service detail came up and said, Mr. President, we need to get you to Air Force One and airborne as quickly as possible. They were afraid that you know the, the, his whereabouts were known and that, that someone was going to plow a, a, a jet into the Emma Booker Elementary School. Just to give you an idea of the, the moment, the, the ceremony that we're watching on at the Pentagon right now, the, the laying of the wreath is expected shortly. Uh, the reading of the names of the 184 victims uh, still being um, read aloud there as we see the Vice President, Mike Pence, paying his respects to those victims. He'll be speaking shortly along with James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. A moment of silence will be coming up uh, just a few minutes from now before, uh, before an invocation by the chaplain, Paul Hurley. And then we will hear from the Secretary of Defense and the Vice President. Carl, if you could look back for us um, at the days that followed these attacks 17 years ago and the moment that significantly changed for this country and for the presidency of George W. Bush when he took that bullhorn at ground zero and he addressed the, 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 the rescue workers on the ground there. Here's that moment. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. I hear you. That moment was so needed, and he delivered that just a few days after these attacks took place. How did that change things? Well, first of all, it was a total accident. There are two people involved in this drama. You saw one of them there. There were no speechwriters, no aides, no advisors saying, Mr. President, if you get a moment and you're given a bullhorn, here's what you need to say. And the other author of this moment is an unknown person. Nobody knows her. A little tiny advanced woman named Nina Bishop. We had been at the southeast corner of Ground Zero. We'd come around to the northwest entrance to the Ground Zero, which is where most of the rescue crews came in and out and all the debris was being taken away. We were in a small motorcade of about, I think, four or five vehicles. The president was in the first vehicle. And we came down, we, we drove south down a little street and then made a hard right. And, and we were surrounded on either side by these mounds of debris with these huge iron workers and rescue workers and first responders standing on them. And the, we were an armored SUV, so you couldn't hear much. You could sort of hear a hum. And as I looked out the window, you could see these big, huge men, mostly men, standing there chanting and waving flags, yeah. waving little flags like this one, which I got that day uh, at, uh, at, mm. at, in New York. And when, when, when we stopped and we got out of the car, you suddenly realized that hum was them chanting, USA, USA. And the president started to walk around the, and shake hands. 
and I felt a little tug on my back. And Nina Bishop, the White House and a White House advance person, who literally has got to weigh maybe 90 pounds, pulls me down, pulls me down so that we're right there because you could barely hear. And she said, she yelled at me. They want to hear from the president. Well, come to find out the night before they'd had an advance meeting, which somebody discussed, you know, shouldn't we have the president speak somewhere? Nina had brought up the issue and everybody said, oh, no, no, but we're not going to have the president speak. But she decided that they that the president needed to speak at ground zero. And so she was going to find some some schlub and the White House staff that she could sell this idea to. So she said they want to hear from the president. And I, I it, it made sense. Yeah. So I went and found Andy Card, the chief of staff, and said to Andy, uh, they're going to want to hear from the president. And Andy immediately sensed that that was the right thing to do. He said, where can he speak? And, and I'd looked around, and he couldn't stand on the, the running boards of the cars, but there was this giant fire truck that had been smashed to the ground by debris, and there were three guys standing on top of it, and it looked to me like he could, the president could get up there and be seen, and, and, and people could, could hear him. And uh, and so I'd said to Nina, do we have a sound system? She said, no. I said, can you get a bullhorn? She said, yes, and went off to get a bullhorn. And so I, I, I doped out this this speaking, this potential platform for the president. And, and I was worried that he couldn't get up there and, and wanted to make certain it was stable. So I told the three, there were three guys standing on top, a Latino, an Anglo, and an old guy. And I said to him, is this thing stable? And they're looking at this guy standing below him in a suit and like, why are we paying attention to you? So I said, is this stable? Jump up and down. And these three guys sort of jump up and down. Well, one of them, the, the, the Anglo, the young Anglo guy, he, he jumps off of the truck and out of history. Two guys left on top of it. Uh, I go to talk to Andy. Andy goes to talk to the president. President immediately knows that it's the right thing to do. Comes back over. Nina has shown up with a bullhorn. And the Latino has jumped off. So there's only one guy, some, an old guy standing mm -hmm. on top of it named Bob Beckwith. And the next thing he knows is some guy below him is yelling, you know, help me, hey, hey guy, hey guy, or hello, you know, or something to get his attention. And, and got his hand up there. He reaches down, grabs the hand, pulls it up, realizes it's the president of the United States and freaks out. You'll notice that the president has his arm around Bob. That's because Bob is like completely discombobulated that he's standing next to the president. And the president doesn't know how to use a bullhorn, so he's you know trying to do his best and some guy starts yelling in the background we can't hear you we can't hear you and the president finally figures out you got to pull the trigger in order to make it and the rest is history exactly what the country needed to hear exactly what the world needed to hear and when he finished that phrase that place exploded i've never seen or heard anything like it in my life it just exploded just this guttural roar from the crowd that's uh, Carl Rove remembering what was happening at Ground Zero. And that's what I remember m more than anything else is that moment on 9-11. A break, and we're back with more. All right, back with you 17 years ago. Were you, were you still were you working with me when the lady called me on the air? I don't know. It had to be like the, the fifth anniversary or something, uh, Russ, and... She was just bitching her head off of why I would play this stuff again for people here. And it just makes people feel bad. It makes them remember things they don't need to remember. And I'm like, oh, uh, no, you need to be remembering what happened. Unfortunately, and, I didn't work with you at that time. Okay. I, I was on the other side no, of okay. the glass, on the network side. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Russ, it... 
the lady that called, it seems to me, owned a little restaurant, something dim sum or something like that, over oh. there, over there in the um, what's that? What's that? Lily's. I know where it used to be it. called Lily's Dim Sum. Yeah, and that, that I think she had something. And to do it was with formerly it. formerly owned by who is now a Little Rock State uh, City Commissioner. Her name is Kathy Webb. Oh well, and then, I don't know if that's the person know, who called you. I don't but know if she it was sounds the one like that called it could have been. But they called and and they were just giving me grief about it, and I gave it back. I'll be honest, I gave it back. There's one thing to I think have a legitimate gripe there's another thing to be just flat out stupid and whoever that was was flat out stupid i remember the listeners went absolutely ape guano on her (laughs) i mean seriously it was not good no, that's the people that don't want to teach history to our kids in school. So they no, they want to erase history. Right, yeah. Well, the problem, the problem is they do want to teach history. If they want to teach revisit, revised history in so many cases, yeah, their history. And, and I don't, I don't trust, I don't trust the government in general to teach history because they more than likely they won't get it right. Yeah. Well, bottom line was, no, that, that's always stuck with me. That you know, it just makes me feel bad. Well, it should make you feel I hope bad. So. You know, and you should hope that we don't have to ever feel that way again. I would venture to bet that the person who called you was not a conservative. Oh, I would. <laughs> I could pretty well tell you that. Okay, and, that and I way. would be interested to know how that same individual might respond today about the immigration issues, because frankly, we have a much more dangerous situation well, in the country we, today if, than if we did then. If she's on the city council, you know what that is. Uh, let's give them Little well, Rock ID cards. We'll, well have a I sanctuary don't, city. I don't know that it was the city commissioner who called you, but that's exactly what I was thinking yeah. about. Well, in 17 years, it's sad that we haven't tightened up immigration since 9-11, and oh we have not That's firmed up the borders of the United States Did you of get America. to hear any of my show Wednesday or Thursday from D.C.? No, I was Oh, dude. It, oh, I got to hear part of it. I it's got to hear it's part disgusting of it. what's going on. Yeah. It just continues. I heard on. a part of it of the former. You had the former director of ICE. On. Oh yeah, boy. yeah. I got he, to hear part of that. Hey Russ, yes. he was good, huh? That was good. <laughs> yeah, I got to hear part of that. <laughs> he but, was good. I mean, why don't somebody put someone like that in charge and give them what they need to get the job done? There's yeah. no doubt in my mind because, he couldn't solve the problem because the leftists and the Democrats in Congress obstruct and resist and fight and don't want to have it done well now we're talking about the bushes and some other there's there's some one world order people on both sides of the aisle yeah you would if you want to call it you would think that if you were a part of the administration when that happened you would be wanting to lock that border down as well as the northern border and the east and the west because you know we talk about all of the the illegals that come up now from uh, the south. But we get a lot from the north, and we get a lot of Chinese from the west. Uh, there's planes that land every day in LAX that basically that all's on those planes are pregnant Chinese women. 
and they come to the United States, have their babies, and their babies have citizenship immediately. How, how dare you want to keep people anchor. out of this country? They're just fleeing problems, and, and we're just here, you know, to, to welcome anybody at any time for any reason and pay for it all ourselves. Well, they're probably, <laughs> you know, they're the, probably running away from a place where they're making Apple phones or something. <laughs> and part of, the, part of the major problem is we're giving them welfare, which is stealing from Americans, and we need to fix that problem. You heard, well, you might not have heard what the gal said the other day on day. Dave's show, and she was from, I'm sorry, was it Germany, uh, Dave? Yeah, that was Sabina from down she in says, Texarkana. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to give up my real legal immigrant status. I want to come back in and as, as an illegal, illegal so I can live it, high on the law. All the good stuff. She was serious. <laughs> she was, she wow. was serious. Yeah, she was making well, it. We're gonna, you, we'll have her on well, the show. You, I'll have her come drive on up and be on the show. Well, well, I'm, I'm sure Dave remembers, and some of y'all maybe remember as well, when um, Huckabee was still governor, and he was wanting to give... Um, illegals um subsidized um college tuition you remember who ran that bill was it jim holt no 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 he wouldn't have run that bill who who was it it was a certain state senator now oh oh oh, sorry sorry i mean who ran the bill to give it to them yeah who was it it was gilbert baker was it no was it gilbert baker (laughs) oh who was it come on you're you're just guessing one of your your favorite uh bald women oh (laughs) Uh, um um I'm assuming it was um, our, our our good Your friend, friend from across um, the Joyce aisle. Elliott. <laughs> Joyce Elliott. That's right. She ran. She ran. Well, that the doesn't bill. that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, no, no. I know. I know. I know. Jim Holt wouldn't have run that. I don't think. No. 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 He was. He was the one who was opposing it. Yes. Seriously. Socialism is for all. Yeah. But I'm just saying. She, <laughs> and yeah. all for socialism. She was all for socialism. Right. Yeah. Solves she was all running the that, that piece it, of Is that like where we go all, we go one? Yeah. That was, yeah. Yeah, that was Jim Holt. Jim Holt was the one who was arguing with the governor at that yes, time. And absolutely. it was, and, the, and um, I, as I recall, Huckabee came up came out saying that um, he drank a different Jesus juice. Than That's right. That <laughs> I was, remember that. that I forgot. He said right. that. Different well, Jesus juice. I there was a couple that. of things that. And you know, and I'm going to tell you, I think Mike has changed his tune about some of this stuff. I think he has. But uh, that, and then the other part of it that uh, that he used to say is, and now you go back and you think where we're at today, and you know, you had two, you had four state reps that were Republicans in the House at that four, mm-hmm. four. Mm-hmm. Two of them were brothers. Do you remember the, who the, what the last name of the brothers was? Mm-hmm. Hutchinson. Hmm. Jeremy, Kent, and, they're still there today. No, he's not here. One of them's <laughs> well, not there. One of the family there. is. Sorry, yeah, one of them is up in Northwest Arkansas. That's right, Tim. Tim, not not uh, Tim. The Tim is the <sighs> uncle. Oh, uh, their father. I'm trying to think of. I need, what a, the other I need a family or But here's wall. the bottom line: Huckabee called them Shiite Republicans. That's right. That's right. <laughs> because they were so conservative, how things change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, I, this is what's interesting for me. I've been here almost 20 years now, and I've seen all this happen. I, I When I first did my first broadcast from the Capitol during a general session, there were four Republicans in the House, and there was a so-called Republican, Republican. senator. And I say so-called because it was Gilbert Baker. All right. <laughs> uh, that's Republican very light. The way I like to call that. But, uh, yeah, that's all five in the whole state government because all of the the constitutional offices were Democrats. 200-plus mm-hmm. years of control. 235. Mm-hmm. I yeah. said plus. Yeah, it, takes, it takes a long time. And it takes a long time 
to change things, <laughs> and and, and we're, we've got the growing pains that go along with that right now. Because just because you happen to be a Republican doesn't mean you might not be, um, you know, um, a thief. Okay? I like that you said growing pains. I don't take that as making light of what's going on today, mm-hmm. like some people might. Yeah. However, it is true that you can't just snap your fingers and say, okay, after 235 years, we've got all Republicans. Everything's going to be the way we want it perfectly tonight, today, yeah. right away. No, and we are un- going through some changes. You've got to un- get rid of all unravel the people some stuff. that are exactly. in that system. Right. So I, I'm, I'm I glad he we reminded us. I through more changes. Right. No, but I, I, can't I, feel I, any, I can't feel any of the changes from right. where it I'm would, sitting at. I don't be, feel them. It would be nice. I don't if, see them. It would, it would be nice if they were erring on the side of, let's, let's change this a little bit faster. I can't tell Let's make people uncomfortable tell as we make our changes. I, I, I don't know a whole tell lot of changed. changed. I, I think maybe the growth has slowed down somewhat. But at the end of the day, I, 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 I think a, a lot of the Republicans still want to grow government. They just want to slow it down a little bit. And they want to grow the economy at the same time so that maybe some of our, the the um, rates of growth in, in relation to the money – is, is maybe kind of stays the same well that's but, not what the platform is right, well and, and, and i want government to shrink because i think government is way too big now i think government was t- too big 10 years ago i think government was too big 20 years ago but government's what five times as big as it was 10 years ago or was it 20 years let ago? me tell you <laughs> when i got here when i got here and governor huckabee. Um, huckabee was in we had just with the with with the state Budget just crossed a billion. Just crossed, just crossed one billion dollars. Right, so we're at about and five we or are six. Five right and three quarter billion. I say it's between right, five so and six now. I believe that's that's our money. That's not pass through money. Pass through money it goes way up with the government money it comes in. But the bottom line is, to uh, we've we've expanded government by over uh, four and three quarter billion dollars. Mm. Mm. So we've. And, we've quintupled or better the size of and, government and not a word from anybody in office about efficiency or duplication or you know yes the governor has a has well, a task force looking giving, at consolidating lips. agencies but i haven't seen they're really giving, anything come giving, out of that yet they're not giving yet. lip service to it but the, but the, I, don't, I don't those things are, are nice and cool but yeah let's 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 get That's rid of the waste fraud and abuse but that may be 10 or 15 percent government was too big at a billion it was too big when 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 the state state side of the budget was a billion dollars. It was too big then. Well, there was a man in my business this weekend, and I didn't start him off. Uh, we were talking about uh, taxes, and I said, uh, I just asked him, uh, "How's your insurance changed in the last five years?" And this is he doesn't own a business; he's mm-hmm. he's an individual, right? And he said that he's had Blue Cross and Blue Shield for fifteen years, mm-hmm. and that. In the it went up so high that he had to cancel Blue Cross and Blue Shield as an individual buying it direct, mm-hmm. and now he was on the uh, Medicaid expansion program, right. and it now was still on, on the Medicaid expansion program. It's still seventy percent higher oh, yeah. today than three years ago when he was buying it direct from Blue Cross and wow. Blue Shield. And he's so not getting he's, subsidies. So he's well, he on the government now. He's on no. He's not necessarily. He's not. If you buy individual, you can buy on the marketplace, oh, okay. but you Sometimes might not get a subsidy. Some people do, so, some okay. people don't. So they okay. canceled his policy, so he had to go to the marketplace. Wow. Oh, wow. But he's wow. going through the marketplace, paying seventy percent more through the marketplace than he was buying it direct. Wow. So I mean, and then he's got the then he's buying it 
his insurance through the government, the but, state government and federal government. Well, and isn't he glad that he has um, he has a maternity leave for himself? Yeah, isn't he glad he's got a Republican <laughs> well, House and Senate and a governor that don't have the backbone to make any change in the direction and the way but, we're going? But Republican socialism tastes better than Democrats. <laughs> well, and you should be comfortable because nationwide this year the average premiums are only up an average of three or four percent, except mm-hmm. for a few states. Mm-hmm. Well, it's up seventy so, percent. You know, in the five costs years. have now flattened out, so now it's all okay mm-hmm. because the market has had a chance to settle down after the Obamacare up disruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I hadn't settled down. Except yet. they haven't addressed <laughs> the issue that half of us are paying for the other half of the country. That's exactly I mean, right. You know, half of us, I think, we're paying for two thirds. And our premiums, even though they but may, let's, let's remember. I mean, it, that is not just as far as uh you know insurance goes it goes medicare medicaid it goes with uh social security it goes with just about any government program that is exactly they take from everybody who's working (laughs) yep and they spread the money out i mean i'm not i'm not you know excited that i know that i got to go on medicare next year Boy, I don't want to do They're it. They're cutting Medicare. Like in you a, said, we already know. Well, sure, they want me to die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the key. I mean, it's a, it's They want to spend money on well, the younger people that, that they think are going to vote for them and are going to be – I mean, they are growing it. So whenever you talk about getting free health insurance to uh, illegals coming in, it's like, why not? We're buying it for everybody else that won't work. <laughs> okay, so before we go any further – I wanted to go back to talking about illegal immigration real quickly because we've got a guest coming up at the bottom of the hour. Laredo Sector Border Patrol agents continue to lead the nation in the apprehension of, and now we always hear about the Mexicans coming over and the El Salvadors and whatever. Nope. How about Bangladesh? There you go. All right, 622 this fiscal year. Why is that important? Does anybody know why that's important here? It's important because it is one of the hotbeds of ISIS right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. Over absolutely. in Bangladesh. There's a reason those little signs on the border are in Indian and Chinese. The ones that say, here's where your water station is and here's where you can get help for that. Mm-hmm. And they're strictly put there for the folks that are crossing the borders. Yeah. Who, yep. who yep. finds your free Democrat yep. Party? Mm-hmm. Little, little signposts. So we better yep. be talking about nine eleven because if we keep doing stupid stuff like that by letting those people well, in, I talked with a gentleman I, that like I, that uh, had worked with the CIA and he says that they know that there are ISIS sleeper cells all over the United States, in every state, and that in Mexico they are they know where they're at. They mm-hmm. have. Uh, Hamas and Hezbollah camps. That's if, what that – I'm Mexico. just telling you that New Mexico location New Mexico. was a, a group that were teaching kids how to assassinate teachers. And tell me what the hell is going on out there when they're letting those people out on bail. They're not charging them with certain well, – Well, char- they, reba- they mean, went back and charged them some again. Of the, uh, well, they got them they, in jail I now. I forget whether it was the state let them out and it was federal charges or whether it was federal it was charges the and the state charged them. But, but on one level, they completely walked away from it. Yeah, you well, go figure. But they're back in jail. They are now. Yeah. But what back. the hell? What's going on? I agree. we got to take a break. Hold, hold, hold your tongue. Open your mouth. 
Archie. <laughs> Grab your tongue. Hold on. We got more coming your way. Don't forget. Don't be forgetting about my friend David Lucas. He's got a free book for you. And the book will help you dealing with claiming your Social Security because there's 567 different ways to claim it. There's 2,728 rules in the Social Security handbook. And the government has told the Social Security Administration that they're forbidden to offer you any personalized advice. So you're on your own. So uh, that might be a reason that as much as $10 billion in benefits a year go unclaimed. Learn how you could wring every nickel out of your Social Security benefits in the up-to-date 2018 Guide to Social Security. It's from David Lucas, host of the David Lucas Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Uh, to get that free 2018 Guide to Social Security, be one of the first 10 callers, 501-653-6690. That's 501-653-6690 or visit davidlucasfinancial.com. All right, back with you. And uh, we're continuing to remind you 17 years ago, 9-11, this is Patriots Day. We remember those who died. We remember those who rose up. And we remember over the last 17 years all that we've done uh, in the Middle East uh, to try to keep this stuff somehow capped. And we're going to talk with a special guest in the next hour, Danny Toma, uh, he's from Oxford, Mississippi, by the way, and that's where we'll be talking to him from. He's written a book, America First, Understanding the Trump Doctrine, and uh, he was, for 22 years, member of the Foreign Service. Um, he was a Foreign Service officer with the State Department all over the world. We'll be talking to him about how the Trump Doctrine has been shaped by what happened on 9-11. So we're going to talk about that. I mean, uh, look, we're still in Afghanistan. Why are we still in Afghanistan? So we're going to talk about that some uh, today. We can talk about Iraq. We can talk about Iran. We can talk about ISIS. We can talk about al-Qaeda. All of that plays a part uh, in the Trump doctrine, and all of that is all tied to 9-11. So if you thought 9-11 has been... You know, happen and done. Uh, uh, I think it was a still happening. It, it was part of a, a, a big system. Oh, it's a wake yeah, up call. It's been going on for a long time. Yeah, well, it, part of it has to do with radical Islam. The Crusades. They maybe. just they <laughs> just they've just been waiting to strike well, a blow uh, at the infidel and, like they did. This is I, the modern day Crusades. That's all it is. Yeah. I, I don't know. That I, you might want to call it that, but I think the modern the, the Crusades were, were a mess. And I think today what we have is a mess as well. And I think part of it is just because we've we've been treating it like a hornet's nest, but be, but like six year olds would treat a hornet's nest because hornet's nest throw. I mean, six year olds throw rocks. Ten seconds. And adults actually take the hornet's nest out if it's needed. Well, we've done that. Well, we've, I mean, we've taken our share of hornet's nest out. We'll be back. We'll talk about yeah, let's it because that's what it's all going to be about when we get back with Danny Toma here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you, Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, we're trying to get a hold of Mr. Toma right now, see if we can get a hold of him to talk to him about the book, America First, Understanding the Trump Doctrine. Do that. I got to call his publicist, and I got to run back to my – stretch it? Okay. Somebody answered the phone now? <laughs> okay. He's still trying to get a hold of somebody. 
Russ is working him over. Confusion All right. <laughs> so while we wait for Danny to come up, I, there was a question I wanted to ask you guys. All right. We've got this huge, huge uh, hurricane, Hurricane uh, Florence, that's coming into the eastern seaboard. It's going to strike South Carolina and North Carolina on the beaches there. So I got a question for you. So the first time that this happens, should the federal government come to the aid of the people who have built along the beachfront? And if we do, and this happens again, should we come to their aid again? Should we come to their aid the first time? Should we come? Should we say no more aid after that? I mean, if, if, how, how do we how do we uh, respond to if it? If by aid you mean by rebuilding for them, no, not even the first time. I, I think that that's that, that we don't need the federal government to 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 rebuild houses for us when storms come through. I don't want the federal government in my business doing that. I can take care of myself. My family and friends can help me help me take care of myself, and I'm willing to help take care of my family and friends. You remember. Back several years ago when one of the tornadoes came, went through Bologna, I think David Meeks put out the call for people with chainsaws to come and help. The, the city was bombarded with men with chainsaws. Plenty of people came to help. I, I'm sorry. We don't need the federal government coming in. and, and um, But I will say this, Paul. I didn't see the, the whole area of Bologna rising up like one big Amish community and having uh, house raising parties uh-huh. no no th- th- that didn't happen although it maybe would have if it if it wasn't for the um, and what about the little old ladies and the widows and the people who live alone and all the folks that don't have like a huge circle of friends to call right. i'm just making a comment right. no i'm I just you know playing devil's and advocate and that's and that's a and it's a it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a for it's a valid concern but the so thing is though, it is a valid concern but the thing is though that that one of the ways that we have security is that we have friends and we have family, and, and I don't think we should have the federal government for that sort of thing. Yeah. They send me an email. Oh, you okay? So you sent Lauren a, an email. Good, thank you. Say like, where are you? That's who. Yeah, where is this guy at? <laughs> where are you at? She's the one who set it up. Did you see my chain with her? Okay, my chain with her was three thirty-five on Tuesday. Yes, Dave, that's great. That works. <laughs> so no i just i in fact i you didn't include me on your chain right. i just had the email from yesterday from okay. her all right so okay so you you re touching base with her right now that's all we needed Correct. to do thank you sir all right you were going what, to say think RD. I'm new to this game or something <laughs> well yeah you just started yesterday <laughs> <laughs> we walked in the we, about 30 we thought you turned into a technician there mr russ yeah you're an ol uh, now i am i am more than a technician i am an operations manager that's what i said he's Ooh. an om i do every freaking do it all thing. <laughs> and he's a producer that's the thing he's he was just a producer now he is the om and does a, a whole darn lot good more. job at it yes too. he does all right rd you wanted to say uh, I say zero. That's why the insurance. If you want to build in a place that you can't get insurance for, it's your own at your own risk. It makes me think of that. Was it that wasn't the Davy Crockett story? Whenever he went and asked his neighbor to vote for him, and his neighbor told him, "Apparently, you don't understand the Constitution, or you don't have the aptitude to understand it when you read it." <laughs> whenever it says that the things that are that are in this Constitution is is what we're restricted to, so. I say build at your own risk if you're on the coast 
you know, that's what the insurance was for. That's what church members for, family and friends and neighbors. And uh, it's, it's our job. There is personal responsibility. We do not live in a socialist country. I don't know. Some some people think we do, and apparently well, we do on some it's level. It's turning more socialist all the time, but but uh, people there's personal responsibility, then there there your neighborhood responsibility, but first is family. Is so, family so here's but. the question, guys. I'm going to be devil's advocate. Okay. <laughs> so what happens if you say, okay, we're not going to rebuild, mm-hmm. but hopefully not, but let's say Wilmington, North Carolina gets wiped out. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about not just people's homes. We're right. talking about government buildings. We're talking about roads. We're talking mm-hmm. about hospitals. So mm-hmm. what then? Who pays? How do we take care of that? Uh, not the federal government. Really? I, th- I, th- I think it's, that's the, f- the first answer is not the federal government. Even if it's the city hall or the local hospital, who's supposed to take care of that? Who's gonna, who, who are their friends that are going to show up and raise that building again for them? But, well, I'm not concerned about city government. Local, I believe we pay local taxes, and I believe that the local government has insurance on their buildings. On the Quorum Court, yeah, uh, we did maintenance on the building, but we also paid insurance. That's true. So uh, – if you have irresponsible people, hospitals are personally responsible. They're a hospital is a private business is in most instances, and they have insurance also. I, I think, generally speaking, hospitals are built so well they don't get taken out. See, now, now you guys are going to get me there, going because I think insurance is a scam. Well, I think insurance is a. I think <laughs> so you both are a, saying we'll just hey, use insurance. No, no, no. I think I, it's I, just no, as not, much of a I'm scam. Not, I'm not saying that insurance is necessarily the solution, but the problem is That's, that the federal government is not the solution. I agree insurance. with you. I don't think it should be the government's responsibility, but that's a theoretical comment because, it, it, as we all know, once on. the government starts right. doing something, the fact that they do it, it never goes away and it grows. It grows, right? So, and, it, and, it, and it encourages bad behavior. We're kind of speaking of you know wishing and hoping here because right. it ain't going to ever happen right. Right? And, and yet it still can, encourages the bad behavior of building um, expensive well and homes that's that's my point i think you know if we have prone. the system we have today then perhaps maybe and it's just a thought once you get wiped out if you want to go back and build on that same location you're now on your own if it yeah. wipes out again too bad too sad right. we've already done the, it once the right, federal they, government and the state government can't even tell people can't even tell people that takes care of their kids or not i agree with you they can't they can't you can't trust them to decide anything we're going to trust them to get involved in our personal life they're going to take care of our health insurance they're going to rebuild our house if it goes down i'm just playing devil's advocate guys are they going to subsidize our business if my business goes bad am i going to write a letter to the president and tell the president to help me out i mean you you have to draw a line somewhere and as far as i can tell we don't have a line. Well, anymore. you just hit the head. You you just hit the nail on the head on the dividing line between conservatives and liberals. Because, I mean, I'm with you. I don't believe that the government should be responsible. But it's the liberals who would write the letter to the government and say, "Save me, save me." They think the government's right. the hey, answer. Can you show me some conservatives? Where are these conservatives at that you talk about so much? Where are they at? Are any of them elected for office? Well, no, I didn't say they were in office. Uh, there's, there's, there's maybe one or two. I mean, Richard Womack, I think, is one of those guys that would probably be up right, right here with us saying, yeah, federal government, get out of town, leave us alone. And, Again, this is and wishing and hoping, though. It is, but there, there are a few elected officials out there, I think, and I think Richard Womack is one of those guys that would be on our side here. All right, we'll pick this discussion up after the top of the hour. Because it'll be a good one. It's one that we need to have. Danny Toma is our guest. He is from Oxford, Mississippi, just down the road from all of us. 
Good to have him along with us. He's written a book, and it's called America First, Understanding the Trump Doctrine. And I want to look at uh, your book, uh, Danny, from the aspect of how 9-11, 17 years ago, changed, you know, the way that we're doing what we do in the world. Because, hey, we're still in Afghanistan. Why are we still in Afghanistan? I I've heard people say that being in Afghanistan is like putting your hand in a bucket of water, and when you pull it out, it's like you were never there. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, that's that's a that's a good point. And historically, I mean, you can go back to Alexander the Great and see that folks have had difficulty in that part of the world. Um, I think one of the reasons we're in Afghanistan, and one of the reasons why we were in places such as Iraq for such a long time, is we forgot what the focus of our foreign policy was and should be, which is America first, which is defending American interest, doing what's right by our people for more prosperity, for more freedom, for more security. Um, We went into Afghanistan rightly and justly after 9-11 because the group of people who attacked us, al-Qaeda, were harbored there in Afghanistan and were specifically harbored by the Taliban government that was in charge. So, and, you know, if you remember back at the time when we attacked, we had the backing of nearly the entire world, except for some assorted malcontents in that part of the region. Um, we had the backing even of, of Hafez al-Assad's Syria, you know, at that time, uh, initially. Um, we, 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 had, we, had, we had people on our side uh, all across the board, and then when we sort of got distracted, when we went by the wayside and decided this is our moment to... Uh, recreate the world in our image this is the this is the uh the the moment to turn the middle east into something uh something better whether they like it or not we kind of lost our purpose for being there in the first place which was to defend our people and that's why we're still there so you've been in uh the uh the foreign service you've been a foreign service officer over 22 years i guess you're retired now yes uh, i retired about four years ago okay with the state department uh I- explain if you would uh, to my listeners, what you would have been expected to do in your job with the government? Well, um, as a foreign service officer, uh, we are what we call uh, uh, generalists, which means it really depends on the job. Each of us has our own specialty, or cone, as they call it in the foreign service. I primarily concentrated on consular affairs during my career, which is um, defending American int- uh, the citizens' American int- citizens' interests and uh, protection of American citizens overseas, uh, visa and border security issues. But I also worked, depending on the job, in other areas. I was a year, almost a year and a half, in Iraq doing economic development during the war there. Um, I did political and economic reporting in Europe and in the Middle East. Did some management things. Was in charge of a security upgrade at one of our uh, consulates. So. A little bit of everything. It's not, you know, the, com- the common image that you get from the films is people in pinstripe suits, you know, sipping cocktails and pushing cookies along, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. You just did that once in a while, right? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, only once in a while, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. L- let me just ask this of you, because I think what we did in Iraq was the right thing to do. I think that, you know, that... Uh, Saddam was a, a ticking time bomb. It was only a matter before he he exploded in the Middle East and 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 dis, you know disrupted the whole the whole area. Uh, do I think that we went about it the right way? I've got my questions about that. And some you know Petraeus. I think I don't know if people listen to him as well as they should have. 
But the bottom the bottom line is is that I think we needed to do that. Do you do you feel that way? I mean, you were in the green zone for over a year. No, actually, I was I was I was sort of in the pink zone. I was I was in Basra. I was in the south, so I was in okay. a reconstruction team. Um, so I, I was up in Baghdad occasionally, but not um, not that often. I was more or less, more you know in the middle of it in the south. Um, you know, I would I would respectfully have to disagree uh, with. Uh, your assertion on, on Iraq. Yes, Saddam Hussein was a thug. Saddam Hussein was no friend of ours. Uh, Saddam Hussein was a potential threat to our interests, um, but at the time that we went into Iraq, um, I, I don't believe he was an active threat. And in fact, I think what happened by taking him out, we created a sort of power vacuum that led to the emergence of all sorts of groups that represented an actual threat to our to our security, such as ISIS. Now, one thing I will give the uh, definitely give the president in this regard is he's done a lot to contain that that threat that has arisen um, in that area. I mean, at, at the from the time of the uh, that President Trump has taken office, ISIS's territory in the area has been reduced by some ninety six percent. If you look, you know, over over 20,000 square miles, if you look at what uh, people were talking about at the end of the Obama administration as to whether all these states, Iraq and Syria, would fail, would fall like dominoes to this resurgent Islamic state, nobody's talking about that anymore because they've been neutralized as a threat. They're still around, but they're around as sort of assorted terrorist malcontents who are on the defensive and on the run. Um, But getting back to your original question... Um, I don't think it was in our interest to go into Iraq at the time that we did, not only because it didn't represent a direct threat to us, but also, uh, and I think this is just as important, particularly on a day like today, we were already involved in a war against people who had attacked us directly, who were a threat to us. And I think by going into Iraq two years into that effort, we got sidetracked, and we certainly diverted a lot of resources away from Afghanistan into Iraq and probably guaranteed another uh, 10 years of life and existence for Osama bin Laden and his lieutenants. All right, and for al-Qaeda, correct? And for al-Qaeda, absolutely. Okay, so now we've got Iran. Yes. You know, what? what's the Trump doctrine for Iran? Is he He's, try, he's trying to, of course... Uh, remove them from the world stage in every way he can, but mere, uh, completely militarily. But uh, is militarily something that's on the table? Well, I think, I think what the Trump doctrine is, going back a little bit to look at you know, what is exactly this about, I think what the Trump doctrine is, is putting America first, looking at what America's interests are everywhere in the world and at home. I mean, it's domestic, too. Um, and using every tool that we can to try to better the lives of our own people at home, to keep them safe, to keep them secure, to keep them prosperous. So it touches things like foreign policy. It touches things like trade. It touches things like economic policy. And it's not tied to a particular ideology. You know, we don't do things because our ideology doesn't tell us, to, you know, tells us we can't do those. We do what works. And I think with Trump as a businessman, he brings that sort of pragmatism to the approach to say, hey, I'm not really interested in who said it or, or you know, whether we're supposed to do it. I'm interested in whether it works or not. So it, as regards Iran, we have to look at, does Iran pose a threat to our safety and security? Of course, the answer is potentially yes. What's the best way to do it? Well, 
Um, as I outline in my book, whenever you're dealing with any kind of foreign threat, you have to look at all the options that are on the table and not rule out any of them, up to and including war. However, war being catastrophic and being something that you don't go back on, because the only way you win a war is once you go in, you go all out. That should always be a last option. doesn't mean you rule it out, but that's what you do when everything else has failed. So, yes, when you're talking about a threat from Iran, military action is always a possibility, but it should be the thing that we consider only when everything else has been exhausted and only when we see a direct threat to our people. The question a leader needs to ask himself, and I think the question President Trump asks himself, is, is there a threat to American lives? Is there a threat to American prosperity? Uh, is there a threat to the way we do things? If the answer to those questions is yes, then this is a threat that needs to be addressed. If the answer is no, then maybe we don't need to be involved in this particular issue. Um, you know, we have in the past, and President Trump, when he was running for president, came out against this. We have in the past been involved in areas where there were no discernible American interests, where there was maybe a government in power that did something that they didn't like, or maybe there was a change in government, government that was one that was maybe not in keeping with what we would rather have be in place. But if there's not a concrete, identifiable American interest involved, it's not a place where we need to get involved. And this is why we've had these long-standing, never-ending foreign commitments, because if we, don't, if we can't identify a threat, then we can't identify a goal. We can't identify something we need to neutralize, so there's no end game. All right. Danny Toma is our guest. We've got to take a break, Danny, and we'll come back and have a few more moments to talk with you. His sure. book, America First, Understanding the Trump Doctrine. We're going to have him on again in the near future to talk about this because it's important that everybody understands what the president is trying to do. All right, back with you. Let's continue on. Danny Toma is our guest. He uh, was, for 22 years, a Foreign Service officer with the State Department. He's written a new book, America First, Understanding the Trump Doctrine, He's from Oxford, Mississippi. Is that where you're at right now, Danny? That's where I'm calling. That's where I'm talking right now. Okay, very cool. It's we speak all... similar language yes. in Arkansas. That's right. <laughs> we we can... just say hotty toddy over here. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, it's, good. it's good to have you with us. We appreciate it. And I'm, I'm glad that somebody has tried to put down on uh, paper what the Trump doctrine is all about. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's important. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I got really tired, especially in the era of foreign affairs, of this media narrative that Trump is just sort of flying by the seat of his pants with, um, you know, aimless, without anywhere to go. Um, if you uh, look at that anonymous op-ed that came out in the New York Times recently that's allegedly written by a, an insider in the administration, although... You know, we have to take the New York Times word for that, since they won't tell us who it is. Um, if that person really is who he says he is, he says he's working underground against the president because the president is going all over and has no first principles that he's operating on. Yet, in that same article, he admits the president's policies in, in the area of foreign affairs have made America, in the short term, more prosperous and more secure. And so I'm thinking to myself... If his policies are so bad, but they're making America more prosperous and more secure, I don't understand the reason for the opposition. We have this, this media narrative that the president doesn't know where he's going and doesn't know where he's coming from. But 
I, at least from my reading, uh, it seems to me pretty clear. The president is concerned about, as he said, making America great again. America first. Looking at where America's vital interests are, getting involved in those areas where they are, but staying aloof um, from those areas that are really none of our concern. We had, um, you know, for much of the first century and a half of our existence, and I I talk quite a bit about the history of our foreign policy in the book, Um, we were admired not because we were pumping out money, not because we were going, especially not because we were going around and telling people what to do, but because we were creating something that served as a model for people around the world, a model republic that created opportunity for its citizens, that created the possibility for them to have um, personal freedom, personal liberties, and, and, and people looked up to the United States because of this. It's only been when we've been seen as not acting in, uh, you know, disinterestedly around the world that our motives have uh, become somewhat suspect. Danny, I'll have you back on in the near future, but I'm out of time for today. The name of the book, America First, Understanding the Trump Doctrine. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Bye-bye now. We'll be back with more after the news. All right. Back with you, Dave Ellswick Show. And uh, it was fun. We were just watching uh, Fox News, and they had the video of President Bush talking to the people on the bullhorn, and uh, we played that that uh, audio clip uh, about what was going on about the old man that was up on on top there that reached down and and the president yelled up. The guy couldn't see him, and the president yelled up and said, uh, "Hey, hand me, give me a hand here," <laughs> and he helped the president up and he realized it was the president and the guy about passed out he was so freaked out by it and it i just saw the guy and if you were ever in the air force okay and 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 i probably in the army or or any but used to see this in a lot of recruiting shops of the old man without any teeth and his lips were like going into his mouth and he had an old world war one uh leather helmet on and stuff and he says uh, we stay up nights uh protecting you so you know you don't have to stay up or whatever it was a, it was a joke of course that guy looks exactly like that dude <laughs> i couldn't believe it except that he had of course a fire hat on at the time he had a helmet on from fire department there of new york fire uh people but yeah he looked exactly like that guy that was a great piece to hear the story of how that came together yeah, because yeah. now that planned. speech yeah now that speech means more to me and seeing him standing up there because that was something off that came cuff. together you don't see the president do anything off the cuff mm-hmm. very often no so and bush doesn't get a lot of credit for doing things off the cuff or or having great statements but he got it right he's not time. known well for strategy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> 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 that was good. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> and look, yeah. I like George Bush. All right. I, I'm going to. I'm, I'm a little disappointed in him with with Donald Trump and and what he's kind of done since Trump's been president. But I'll tell you what. I got to meet the president when he was the governor when he was running for governor in Texas. I was on the air talking about him and talking about why people shouldn't be voting for Ann Richards. And uh, there was a knock at the the, the the studio's door faced the parking lot for the radio station. And uh, you had to understand, sometimes you do what you have to do to be able to do a show or whatever. And the way we did talk at this station, uh, KWFT in Wichita Falls, Texas, is that I bent a 
a, a microphone that I would have a guest come in. I meant I bent it down and put it by the the speaker on the uh, on the phone, mm-hmm. and then I had my own mic. So if people <laughs> called me and I brought them up when they talked, and it was you know for, you know right. playing over the phone. It went right over the air, so it sounded sure. like they were just calling in and talking mm-hmm. to me. Well, there's a knock at the door during a break, and I open it up, and it was Bush <laughs> standing huh. at the at the <laughs> studio door, and I go I go hi. <laughs> and, he, and he says, I heard you talking about me. I was listening to your show, and I thought, I could answer the questions better than you could. <laughs> and he came in and did 90 minutes with me. Wow. 90 minutes? Yeah. Wow. It was crazy. That was crazy. And then, of course, he went and he upset Ann Richards. That was a huge story, if you remember. That's put him on the map for running for president. And then uh, we went and did the show from the, the White House lawn and everything. It was, you know, it's Kind of my, I got to write a book. I guess everybody keeps saying <laughs> you keep saying that. Uh, you need to write the book, Dave. You need to write the book. I don't know if I'm going to do it or not, but maybe it would be fun to do it. But somebody asked us a question today, and and it rightfully deserves an answer. Why didn't our state paper, the Dem Gas, have something about nine eleven on the front page today? I don't know. What did they have on the front page today? Yeah, let's see. I look. <laughs> this is the I local. I got the local here. They have the, a picture on the front on the top of the page that doesn't even refer to an article in the newspaper. Okay. It's just got, a picture. Here's the, here's the it, local It's an section. important picture, I guess. But here's the sports section. Okay. On the front page. Know, yeah. I'm getting to it. Front page. I'm looking for it. There's the business section. Is that the front page? Uh, no, this is B. I had the front page. <laughs> I know I had the front Oh, here it is. It's under, it's under a bunch of my other stuff. See, I got I got a big pile of stuff just like Russ does. Just like, you know. So anyway. So your, your, <laughs> your friend says, you know, look at the front page of the paper. There's nothing about no, 9-11. And clashes, the picture, the picture above the fold the doesn't even Palestinian. relate. And it doesn't even relate to an article in the paper. Uh it's Article 4A. Oh, there okay. you go. It's 4A. Uh, trade threat by U.S. draws Chinese retort. Powerful Florence targets East Coast. The we got ca- the guns out there. The, got uh, guns. The casinos measure headed to court. State panel takes up gun control proposals. And Watch last out. but not least, the Little Rock Diocese releases list of clergy implicated in sex abuse. Nothing on here that says anything about nine eleven. When is the state going to have a panel, or when are they going to do something as far as? And I do. I know they do have a uh, that they have a, a work group, whatever they want to call it, a work group looking at, at uh, improving school safety. I know they do have. Yeah, they've got that. But they have that, but uh, it has nothing to do with these. With these laws, or or what they're reviewing, this joint group is reviewing the change of age on assault weapons. Like any of these kids that's done the shooting had legally, I don't think any of them that I know of had legally obtained the guns whether, anyway. Whether or not they had this, that's it's not the proper role of government to do that sort of thing. But I think at, at the end of the day, this was a this was kind of a publicity stunt sort of thing. I don't think there's any chance those bills will pass. If you go back to page 7A, 9-11, the beginning of a journey for some. Disaster's aftermath leads some New York City, D.C. residents to new hometowns. And is it at the top of the page? No, it's in the middle of the page. It's It's, it's under under a picture of North Korean youth 
hold torches during the torchlight march at Kim Sung Square in observance of the 70th anniversary of North Korea's founding day Monday in Pyongyang, North Korea. Well, here's a little story. I don't know how much you know about how you lay out a newspaper, but your advertising goes in first. Your front oh, yeah. page, you know, there's certain things that get slugged in there. When you got something in the middle of page seven, that was a filler. Yeah. That was just something they I slugged know. in there to take up some space. They had no intention of even really promoting or talking about 9-11. Interesting, huh? Well, they might, if they did it, they might end up promoting, you know, Donald Trump's speech today or something like that. We'd rather talk about uh, threats from China on on Donald Trump's policy, something that would make the president look bad well, instead you, of looking at the interests of... Or you might want to do a story, an update of how people are still suffering because they helped on 9-11. Yeah, the managing editor. Let's call the well, managing that, editor. That kind of a story might fly because it would make the Republicans who were in control when it happened look bad. See, if you look at that front page today and kind of think about what are those articles all talking They're all talking about things that are on the left side and things that they promote. There's nothing there that, that sort of supports the other side of the arguments about things well, that are going on in the world today. Well, it's kind of interesting you know, when you think about it. You're talking about the health issues from the, from the people that were helping that day? That's, that, what, that's what that's what Dave right. that might make a good story. Right, it might, it might make a good story, but the sacrifice the is, it, that, of those not, that served that really wasn't a yeah. dem- a re- Republican issue. I mean, the, no, the no, city no, was no. run by. No, I'm just saying uh, that. Right? No, it would have made. What I'm saying is, the newspaper has selected the articles they put on their paper on their front page for a reason, I and they're not going to put anything on that front page that's going to help support. That the may, Republicans. That may be. And it's, Nothing. That's, that's They're just their, not going to do it. That's their prerogative. Now, I do have a really important story here over in, in the news. Olivia Newton-John has been diagnosed with cancer for the third time in three decades. Mm. That's a, I guess that that's better than 9-11 story. There you go. Yeah, I'm just saying, Oklahoma zookeeper faces important federal stuff. charges in a murder-for-hire plot. <laughs> uh, Dale Ferran, 73, of Fort Edward, New York, said he stopped to buy Slim Jims as a snack for his dog Boots and also picked up a, a scratch-off lottery ticket, which turned out to be worth $10 million. Uh, Reverend Shelton Myers of Greater St. James African Methodist Episcopal Church in Hammond, Louisiana, said the 1867 church is closed because of termites. Uh, Alfred Patterson of Raymond, North New Hampshire, was arrested in Boston in an attempt to kidnapping. I mean, these are really important stories. No, I mean, there are a lot of noise to distract <laughs> you from the saying. important things. Yes, all that is news. You're right. But is it really important news that you're going to care about even tomorrow? You have to, uh, you even are, tomorrow. You, well, you, are, you are hearing some, some the cynicism in my voice, some, are you not? Sometimes, Absolutely. Sometimes the best brainwashing is a distraction. Well, and that this is, you know, this is what goes on today. If you turn on Fox News or anything else, you hear a bunch of talk so and not anything The managing substance. editor didn't want to say hi. Yeah, he didn't want to talk to you. <laughs> I can't believe they didn't want to talk to you, Dave. Okay, but anyway, I, that's his, his, his one of position, our listeners asked get, a question. Yes, get, his position was this: that none of the events commemorating had happened when they published the paper last night. I said, "But you've still got the memorial of it," and he goes, "But none of the events took place yet." I said, "They happened seventeen, 17 years, years ago." ago. Yeah, and he well, said, uh, it, "Silence." It's just Crickets. ridiculous Cricket, that you'd Cricket, think that Cricket, I would Cricket. publish anything <laughs> like that on the front page. 
Wow. This is the same people that tear down the statues because wow. we just don't believe that, uh, in history. If you go and look at the website, that they've got all of this stuff on the website. Right oh, now. yeah, yeah, okay. I'll remember that because I tomorrow I won't so buy, buy your paper. paper yeah. <laughs> look at the website. I'll just look at your website. Well, they put the good How's stuff that? on the website. If you, look at the re- if you listen to the reasoning that he just said, then it'll be all about on the paper Donald Trump tomorrow. His speech will be yeah. all over the paper tomorrow so because it happened. Case. It happened today. Yeah. So the newspaper, he's also saying that everything that's they put why, is always a day behind. That's right. That's why They're everybody always a day behind. listens to radio and you know, sits down maybe and watches the news on television because at least you're getting the news that happened today. You don't Instead wait until tomorrow, until tomorrow to find out what happened today. <laughs> so anyway, here, here's what it's so really think all about. about that, advertisers. <clears throat> anyway. Here's, here's what it's really all about. This is from your Facebook page. Actually, okay. from the 101.1 Facebook page. Okay. Frank Cicero says, Every generation has pinnacle moments burned in their memory. My father's were Pearl Harbor, VE Day, VJ Day. For me, JFK Dallas, MLK's murder, Bobby Kennedy, 9-11. A generation is already born that has no memory of 9-11. Who recalls the fallen heroes of Bunker Hill, Gettysburg, San Juan, Midway, Normandy, our fallen heroes live only in the minds of those who recall their sacrifice. That's why we're talking about it today, Mr. Demgaz. Yeah, and Frank Cicero, I served with him on Guam. All right, that's, that's a military and, buddy of mine. And he actually said, uh, there was a post here from Mark Wallace who says, I remember I was on the air at the other station with Dave Ellswick, I will never forget. And this was Mr. Cicero responding to that. Yeah, Mark uh, Mark Wallace was my producer. That's why we talk the about these things. All right, 20 minutes after 4. we got more to talk about here on the Dave Ellswick Show. we got the power panel. I haven't introduced them as though they need any introduction. Elizabeth, say hi. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that you knew it was not a male identifying as a female. Hi. <laughs> and we've got... And we've got R.D. is here, and, Howdy. We, and we've also got Paul. We'll be back with Hi. more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Wow. Just craziness going on. Evidently, at a uh, family member or something that was, did he say on the 20th floor, I think? And uh, so we'll see what, uh, I, we have no idea what happened. I'm just telling you. Uh, the, the guys that really took it on the chops were the people that were down where the subway comes through under the World Trade Center. A lot of them got trapped underneath mm-hmm. there and died, and it, it was a terrible, terrible uh, situation. Let me talk to R.D. for a moment. Uh, you've heard me talk about Sonny's here on on the show a lot. R.D. is the man behind Sonny's, or he's the owner uh, of Sonny's, and he's got a whole lot of really good people that work for him at Sonny's. And kind of w- walk somebody through, if I... If, Let's just use me for an example because I've been using you quite often here because my old cars keep falling apart. Uh, got to, bought a brand new engine uh, from you, not brand new, brand new as in taken out of a car that was destroyed basically, but the engine was still in good shape. Only had forty five thousand miles on it. That's very few miles when you look at engines today. And I, I bought it from you, and uh, your people put it in for me, uh, and you guys did a fantastic job. 
Well, thank you. That's why we buy totaled out cars that still have life left in them before the accident, and uh, we test the parts and we we take care of the freon and the oil and the antifreeze and handle those in a responsible way. And we recycle cars that are totaled out, and we offer people uh, probably savings of half price over other parts buying Maybe a new part more. or more half or more so you recycle we use the part for what it's intended for and we offer one two and three year warranties on them and install them and we have both part and labor warranties so uh, uh it's a very unique business and uh, we enjoy what we do because we enjoy helping people now here's the key that three-year warranty parts and labor also comes with an unlimited miles uh, involved i mean i've i know other you uh, can't places. get that from hardly any rebuild shop or anything like no that, you'll get the, usually the best you'll get is parts and labor and twenty four thousand miles for two years uh some will give you three but even if they give you three uh it's not unlimited miles, yeah they may only be think, giving you yeah. thirty six thousand miles and i'm going to tell you what in three years i drive well over thirty six thousand miles unlimited miles at that point I got three years. Right. And we also assist your do-it-yourselfers selfers out there that buy parts. We'll even offer the, the three-year warranty. Uh, if you buy the part and put it in yourself, we still offer the one, two, and three-year warranty if you buy the part from us. There's only an eight-page uh, test that you have. No, that's just kidding. No, you do, you no do, but you we do, do assist people. Yeah, we do assist people in helping them get the part in install properly and refer them to someone that has the computers to reset them and stuff like that so we work we work with do-it-yourselfers and and we have a lot of female customers that buy parts from us and we help them find people that do work for them and uh matter of fact my dismantler right now that that dismantles cars for me right now is a retired uh air force veteran and is a female so we've got a lady that dismantles our cars for us right now and she does an excellent job how long has sunny's done the the work done the labor part of putting those parts i believe they've done it since the very beginning back in 1976 i had never ever heard of a of a uh, you know salvage yard doing that i always knew you know you pull it or whatever you guys pull it for them and give it to the people but i not uh used to hearing yeah. those people we have things in we have free delivery from a 75 mile radius all around uh little rock arkansas so you so can if you come want in. to go to joe's garage you'll yeah, put we the deliver to there. joe's on a regular on basis the, we deliver ducks. to ducks to on a regular basis so uh, we've got free delivery so if you want to buy from us and have someone else put it in you don't even have to haul it come and pay for it and we'll drop it off at your local shop for you it's a great deal i'm just telling you this is a great deal sunny's auto salvage it's your number one choice for recycled auto parts remember what i've always said i'll go green when it saves me green, and this saves me green, no doubt about it. Uh, 982-7451 is the number uh, to get a hold of R.D. or one of his staff, 982-7451. And uh, he's an upstanding member of the Dave Ellswick Power Panel as well. Does a good job. I want to go back and pick up something we had talked about last hour uh, and then we broke away so we could talk to uh, Danny Toma, and that is how much should the federal government be involved uh, when we have you know terrible natural disasters, uh, natural disasters like Katrina or 
maybe some of you can remember back in the early 2000s, late 1900s. Makes me feel so old <laughs> in the late 1900s. Uh, you know, when they had the Mississippi flooding, you guys remember that? It was terrible up in Missouri, and, and, and homes that, yeah. were destroyed and things of that nature. Uh, and, and the question came up, you know, look, flood insurance, for the most part, nobody sells that except the federal government. So should the federal government uh, sell uh, uh, flood insurance? And if they do, uh, if you get flooded out one time, should you be you know, able to buy it another time? We'll talk about it when we come back. All right, we're back 17 years ago. Paper didn't want to put anything on the front page to remind you about it. Maybe tomorrow they'll tell you about the president's speech since it hadn't happened yet. They'll do it tomorrow. He did a good job. Yeah, Yeah, they'll do a big write-up on it. Yeah, we we replayed that today. That was how we opened the show. And he did a great job. The story he told about the people on Flight 93 was uh, very – it was really inspiring, to say the least, about the the ladies that – were the flight attendants, and they were boiling water, ready to use it to throw on to the, uh, you know, the hijackers. Well, pe- people and get get creative when when they've been disarmed, and they, you can figure out ways to make weapons. And sometimes it doesn't really for, work. From what I had heard, they they got through the cockpit door just as impact happened. Well, they if if they could have gotten in. A few minutes before somebody could pull the nose up. Pulled, pulled well, they up. probably caused the impact. The, the intended impact, I'm sure, was going to be a very capital. high profile target, which and probably was, it was a capital. capital. It was the capital of the White House, one so or the other. If if they wouldn't have done what they've done, then it would have changed history. Yeah, probably so. I, I thought it was interesting. Also, we heard in that first uh, uh, part, first hour, talking about uh, the vice president when. They were trying to reach him when that had happened, that immediately the Secret Service had burst in his office, grabbed him under his arms, lifted him out of his chair, and ran ran him to the elevator to the, the below-ground mm, uh, bunker to protect him mm. in case, you know, they, 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 they figured they'd be well, trying to come there, you yeah, know. No, that's not a, not a bad assumption. Not a bad assumption that, you know— you know, everybody says, well, why did the president look like that when, you know, he found out? Well, you know, everybody at that point didn't know how big the plot was. Well, at that point, Could I, have think, been I, snipers I, I think, around I think they were, they were saying they didn't, they didn't know what it was that flew into the tower. It, they didn't even know if it was a, just a single engine plane or something big. And so at that point, do you just start panicking? Well, everybody knew and where the president not. was. Right. President and and I think not. that's kind of the point there is that, that, that it's, it's not reasonable to just panic. Okay, so you get something. Somebody tells you, well, there was a plane that flew into, flew into, flew into a building. We don't really know how big it yeah, was or what the situation was. He didn't get up at that moment. He, he right. continued to right. finish reading right. the book to those kids. Because for all he knew, it could have been a Cessna. That, yeah. Well, some guy that had a heart attack or something. Yeah. But, uh, from what it sounds like. And so the, there's uh, not panicking is a, is actually a good trait. Yeah, it is speaking. until you know what's I mean, going on. And even then, you still need to keep your head. Yep. And um, unfortunately, that's that's not a, a, a big, strong point with a lot of Americans these days. No, but, it's not. By the way, let me remind everybody, again, I hadn't told everybody about this. You're looking for a good job. I've got a good job for you to look into, especially if you can work with your hands, you like to work outdoors, 
Uh, join up a PI Roofing Home Solutions. They're expanding their operations department to better serve their customers as they grow. Uh, you can build your future with them. PI Roofing Home Solutions has career opportunities in the commercial, residential, and service division, and the home solutions division now. You can make a difference together with them and climb your ladder to success. Apply at piroofing.com. That's piroofing.com or 501-707-3551. All right. So, uh, Elizabeth, you had stepped out of the uh, the studio. We were talking a little bit more about how the government should get, should get involved in you know, things that are disasters, whether it's an earthquake, whether it would be uh, a tornadoes or, you know, hurricanes or whatever. And, uh, you know, I kind of agree. For instance, flood insurance. For the most part, flood insurance is sold by the federal government. And the reason it's sold by the federal government, as I understand it, is because it's such a high-risk type of situation and uh if you were to get insurance companies to offer it it would be so exorbitant the average person couldn't afford it so the government comes in and offers it at a lower rate so that the average person can buy some insurance however you run into the situation we did back in the late 90s 19 now i'm I'm taking you back a century 1900s kids all right uh back in the 1990s where the mississippi if you remember this overflowed and in missouri it was terrible and a lot of people lost their homes and as soon as the mississippi receded people proceeded to build back to build right back where it had uh, it had already flooded and it was it was only a 20-year floodplain it's not like it was a hundred year or 200-year flood. I mean, we're talking wow. within the next 20 years, that's going to flood again. Well, that's the government's job to incentivize bad behavior, isn't it? <laughs> there you go. And that's, I'm afraid that that's basically there all this go. is, is you subsidize insurance <laughs> for, for bad behavior. And that's dumb. And that's, see, well, insurance that, and that's is also, money. It, it, insurance right, is also, also just st- redistribution of wealth, guys. Right, it is. Okay? It, is a form. it is the same scheme. Right. It's and just so, who's going to run it. Right, because the fact is that you, know, you can find an insurance company that will insure your home that's in a bad flood zone, but it might cost you 500 bucks a month. And you have the choice. I'd like to have the choice if I'm going to be responsible for building those people's house or not. Yes, insurance is a form of socialism and is a transfer <laughs> of wealth. All insurance is. Yep. But at least if I lived in a free country, I could decide if I wanted to buy it or not. Right. Right. And, and take instead the risk. Of, instead of the federal government taking the money away from me and then doing what they want right. to with it. But you don't if, have I'm, to. if I'm right, Elizabeth, correct me if I'm wrong, but if people did want to go back the first time and build in that area, they had to buy flood insurance from the government. I believe that's right. I'm not positive, but I believe that's right. Yeah, the government forced you. To buy insurance from them, mm-hmm. kind of like oh. uh, health insurance. Well, that, that may well, we've got to make only. it profitable. Well, but the thing is, I think I think the way this generally works <laughs> is when you when you build a house with a mortgage, you have to have insurance if it's in a flood zone. That's they, correct. They will not loan you money if you That's don't have it. That's because the bank doesn't want to be left right. without its money right. on your so mortgage. They're, they're not they're not that stupid, and so they they'll they'll basically force you to have insurance. Well, don't and, loan and if, the money, right? And that's the sensible thing. But the problem is that that um. 
the federal government's gonna gonna provide the insurance or at least subsidize the insurance and so then they build bad houses or but, if but they th- want they'll they'll give them the money to build the house they might do that too you know, and, 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 may and yeah Freddie that worked Mac. out real well didn't it that it worked sure real did. well yeah hey let's just let everybody build a house right let's and, just and that's, loan money that's, to everybody and that's taxpayers can afford right. it it's your right Donald yeah Donald. taxpayers and, can and, afford and that, it and that's another part of the problem is elizabeth the, loves me when i get i, in I think the government actually benefits What's from right? people are building expensive homes that are not sensible to build and so the government can grow when they're stimulating the economy with this with this money that's being loaned into existence and and, and the fact is that people make bad decisions when you subsidize bad behavior you know, if I want to call it infrastructure building, if maybe you so. want to grow government, say we need to build the infrastructure. But the thing is, you know, if I want to build, I'm, I, I might want to build a house on a river that floods on a regular basis. But if but, you, but if you're going to build, if you're going to build the infrastructure, build it across my land. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I, I might want to build a build a house on a, on the front of a beach or on a river that floods on a regular basis. But guess what? I can build that. Without government subsidized insurance, I can build it in a way that's that I can self insure, which which can mean that's against the law. Which can mean, <laughs> well, not no, not really, <laughs> not generally speaking. Which, which can mean one of a couple different options. I might build it really tough, which Ooh. might mean might mean that I put it up on stilts and, and build it so it's very resistant to flooding, or I might build it very inexpensively so that I can rebuild the thing if it floods. So there's a couple different option, options there, but none of those require um, government subsidies. So, so let me throw some statistics at you just for funsies, and you're going to love this. Uh, this is coming out of New Jersey. It's dated in July of this year, so it's current information. And it says more than 3,300 homes and businesses in New Jersey have repeatedly flooded and been rebuilt at taxpayer expense, some as many as 20 or more times oh. since the <laughs> 1970s. Repairs to these properties, which were covered under the National Flood Insurance Program, which federal, which provides low-cost flood insurance to a quarter million of New Jersey property owners. These repairs to these properties cost a total of about seven hundred million dollars. About seventy percent of these New Jersey properties have been repaired five or more times, with the median mm. payment for each flood claim more than twenty-five thousand dollars. Wow. New Jersey has the third highest number of repetitive lost properties under the federal flood program that is behind Louisiana and Texas. Wow. So, yeah, you guys are talking about something that is costing us all a whole lot of money. So what's the what's the annual expenditure on this on this um, subsidized welfare Well, this is program? out of this is out of New Jersey only and talking about New Jersey only and it's these properties that have been rebuilt uh, cost about 700 million dollars in one state. Only. That's that's annually or over the course of this a, is these homes that have flooded numerous times since the seventies the the okay. in New Jersey. Right. So in New Jersey, the, com- the the homes that were covered under the flood insurance program, the federal flood insurance program, uh, have cost us seven hundred million dollars since the seventies. But it feels so good to help these people by, by stealing from the rest of Americans. But it feels so good. Now a break. We we'll come back. Last uh, segment for today's power panel. Got to bring up, there's a yeah. new movie coming out, and I got to talk about what's left out of it when we come back on the Dave Ellswick Show. There's uh, America's Mayor, Rudy Giuliani. All right, sounds a lot different now than he did then, doesn't he? 
17 years later. And I heard him speak not long after 9-11 about that event. It was extremely moving. No, it was yeah. about three or four years. No, about five years later. All right. Got to ask you guys a question. I haven't had the opportunity to present this to you since I've been gallivanting in the Washington, D.C. and whatever. There, uh, Ryan Gosling is playing, uh, you know, the first man on the moon. You know, he's going to be uh, talking about uh, the big the big moon landing that happened back in, what was it, 69? Wasn't it 69? Yep. All right, 69, that Armstrong landed on the on the moon. But I think they're talking and, about the fake one, not the real one. Yeah, yeah. well, they're talking about the, the – they have made this into, uh, into a movie. But there's a, a significant historical event that was left out, the planting of the American flag. Now, Ryan Gosling said he felt that they didn't do it because it was a great moment for the world. Well, if you're going to be true to history, <laughs> it was it, we were in a space race with the Russians at the time, and it was a huge, huge factor that the free world, all right, that America, the leader of the free world, planet the american flag on the moon that was one of the reasons we did what we did yeah that's the reason we were there controversial dave (laughs) and buzz is not happy buzz aldrin good for him all right he uh posted a picture the next day of he's in a t-shirt and uh, he's in front of the picture of armstrong with the american flag and he's saluting the american flag and and he's uh-huh. he's all been out you know he's been out of shape. Uh, Armstrong's kids, on the other hand, said it was a a world event. As yeah, well. they went to public schools. Their dad, their dad, he's, <laughs> they, they said their dad didn't want to be thought of as a hero. Well, whether you most heroes don't want to be thought of as heroes. That's just the honest God. Did he want to be thought it. of as an American? He, no, yeah, he of did, course. Did he, I'm yeah, sure. ask him that question. Well, here's another thing well, that was I left out. I wish we out. could, but he passed on. Yeah. Did you know? And I did know this that Buzz Aldrin took communion on the surface of the yes. moon. Yes, hmm. that also was, of course, not included. In and the I'm movie. sure they're not going to play no. in the beginning. No, you know they the movie no. as well. What no. we're talking about. So they're shaping this event that changed the whole world in the way that they want us to think about it. It is not right. It is not what really happened. No. They're shaping the way that they portrayed this the same way they're shaping our children in the mm-hmm. public school systems. It is one world order, no borders. Uh, and George Bush is is one of them. Yeah. But it's called jingoism. If we take jingoism is where that you have – uh, pride in your country, mm-hmm. and if anybody challenges your country or the pride in your country, then you're willing to fight for it. So if nationalism, if, right? Nationalism. So if they remove jingoism from our from our curriculum and you teach one world order to all of them, we can eliminate wars. We'll be one big happy family. There won't be any good guys. There won't be any bad guys. There'll be no need for borders. And you can just and wake up and be whoever a, you want to be every day. That's exactly right. And if you <laughs> believe that, but that's exactly what they're teaching in our school systems, and that's exactly what it is. You know, put America first is not being taught to our children. You know, children. it's amazing to me when I, I sit and think about a lot of different things is how Star Trek 
was absolutely against a lot of the things that we believe in. Mm-hmm. There was no country. Mm-hmm. It was the Federation. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, just exactly what you're talking about here. And uh, nobody was being paid. I never saw anybody get a paycheck Mm-mm. in Star Trek. It was I'm, everybody ought to be paid equal. Don't it's you think that's the way it ought to be? Everybody ought to be paid the that's same. That's exactly what it was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody's mm-hmm. paid the and, same. I mean, that was in the mid-60s, folks, that that all, we they, were all being tried to be brainwashed. Well, and the, the Democrats want to take all this out of history and, and not, you know, America cannot go and be exceptional and be, you know, the leader of the free world as we've always been. But yet, during all those years when Obama tore us all down, what have all these national leaders had to say to Trump? We're so glad you're back. We're mm. so glad you're back. Now, how does that square with national, uh, uh, you know, globalism and no borders and you don't get to be who you are, which is an exceptional country in this world. But the left will say that's not the case, Elizabeth. The left tells us that the uh, other oh, leaders of the free world hate Trump. That's right. I blah, forget. Blah, 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 i got to listen to what they tell me, mm. not that's what right. I know is true. Yeah. And one of the things that people will say that, well, American exceptionalism is just kind of racist type stuff. But I think part of the problem is that, that – that people on the right, they'll talk about American exceptionalism, but they won't actually articulate it very well. And so it sounds like racism as opposed to, you know. That's because they weren't taught and they don't know how. And that's, and that's part of the problem, I they think, don't know is it. That, that, that should we teach American exceptionalism? Well, there's a bunch of, we're just a bunch of white people over here and we're just really good at stuff. Or should it be that, that you know, maybe we like liberty and that helps maybe people be Maybe it's a country that enjoys freedom, which allows and people to use innovation and, <laughs> you know, invention and better their world by being free enough to be able to do but, so instead of being held down by a government. But we've become addicted to government subsidies and government Speak policies. Speak for yourself. <laughs> well, the thing, but the thing is, as Americans, we have. And so I think it's, 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 hard, for, it's, it's hard for us to stand back and say that, that, well, American exceptionalism is about liberty and justice because the fact is we've rejected it. We've rejected liberty and justice on so, in so many cases, in so many levels, that we, we can't identify that, well, American exceptionalism is actually about liberty and justice because it's not anymore. I hope apparently. we haven't permanently lost the ability to identify that because if we have, then our country is done. Uh, I, I don't done know for. if it's permanent or not. but the, I don't think so. But I, think the fact I think all the Trump supporters would, would kind of argue with you on yeah, that but, point. But, I know but, I would as a Trump and, supporter. And, <laughs> but the thing is, even a lot of conservatives are not able to articulate that we, we do want liberty and justice because so many in so many cases, a lot of people who call themselves conservatives, they still support crony capitalism and a lot of corporate, corporate welfare and whatever else. And it's a problem. We need to actually educate educate conservatives to be conservative to tell a conservative from someone that's not again if we had a culture that talked about these things that celebrated individualism that celebrated freedom that celebrated the benefits that we get from living in a free country Mm -hmm. then it would be what i call a social conversation not only would it be a social conversation but it would be acceptable to talk about those things and i i i say to you it is still acceptable. There are still many of us who believe right. that way. Some of us, and by the way, if you're out there and you believe that, you need to start talking. Right. You and, need to quit hiding. And, and, you need and, to bring it back. We've got to fight because there's a culture war going on, and they want to take it away from and us. And stop making it normal for people to accept government subsidies. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to go apply for grants and whatever else because you know I don't actually want to work for myself. I don't actually want to actually be a rugged individualist and 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 um, support my own family without some government handout. I, when are we going to actually 
I want a government handout just to get the money back that they took from me to from hand me. out. <laughs> I just want all that money back that I had to pay in for my Social Security that I know I'll never get back. Right. Yeah. And, and there, there's there's some validity to those arguments as well. But but at, at the end of the day, when, when we've got people that are that are making gazillions of dollars in some of the corporate um, realms the, the, off these corp, off corporate welfare, when are we going to stand up and say this is wrong? All right. Got to tell you, that's all the time we got. Yes, we'll, we'll, you guys are picking up a Carl Kimball next Tuesday while I sit on the beach in Panama City oh. with an umbrella in my glass. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Yummy, <laughs> yummy. Keeps the sun off of Next right. week, I'm, I'm on vacation, but Carl Kimball will be filling in for me, and Carl always does a good Excellent job. job. He be does fine. a good job. Elizabeth, R.D., Paul, Enjoy thanks it, a lot. The Bible Thank guys you. are next here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. Last hour of a Tuesday show. That means the Bible guys are here. Of course, that means that Scott Stewart has joined us from Agape Church, 701 Napa Valley Drive in Little Rock. Sunday service times there at 10 o'clock. ACLR.org. That's your website. ACLR.org. Twitter, if you want to. And I only have to do his because <laughs> there's this other guy I'm going to be talking about doesn't have a Twitter. Uh, at Dr. Scott Stewart. That's a DR, no period after the DR. D R S C O T T S T E W A R T. And you can send him a direct uh, message and he'll send you a direct answer. Absolutely. Well, that's a good way of getting in touch with the man. All right. And uh, Steve Hess is here, too. Hello. So, uh, let me just tell you, you won't want to miss Thursday a week, not this Thursday, but the following Thursday. Steve Hess is going to be uh, sitting in for me while I go on vacation and uh, is going to be the host with the mostest from two to four. And then after he's done. Did you say hostess with the most? The host, that's what he said. Uh, the, host, yeah. the host with the most. Oh, there you okay, go. That's Not better. the hostess. <laughs> well, now wait. You could identify as a female if you wanted to. Oh, yeah, but you I won't. Be, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you could be the hostess. If so, we have our topic for the show. <laughs> yeah, today. we do. We, we definitely have that. But uh, he'll be sitting in for me from two to four. And he's got to hustle off. But also in the studio that day will be Elizabeth during two to four and then she'll be in the seat that i'm sitting in right now from four until six with hannah and with uh, shelly and they'll be there also with steve so you will be sir treading water of estrogen <laughs> i'm just telling you i'm a married man with three daughters there you go. You girls, tread, don't, I didn't girls say. do not scare me okay well that's good so anyway you'll be with them by the way i did something over labor day i haven't had time to talk to you guys about it mm-hmm. uh did I bring up that I went to the Ark Encounter? Uh, no, I know you were going. So. Yeah, I did go going. to the Ark Encounter. What did you think? I was stunned. In the incredible? I thought it was going to be cool, but I had no idea it would be ultimately that cool. Right. I mean, you walk up, this thing's 510 feet long, mm-hmm. seven stories tall, <laughs> and you know half the width of a football field yeah. inside. It's and, huge. And you only get to walk up three floors of it. You right. don't get to do the whole seven. No. No. I'm sure because they'd just be repeating what they had on kind of the, the yeah. street. Have you you seen it? You uh, said? Yeah, mm-hmm. been it, there twice. Were you amazed by it? Absolutely. And the thing that really really was amazing to me, and I never even thought about it when they're describing how they would have 
brought the water in, how they got rid of the waste, how they would yeah. have fed the, the really wild ones. And and uh, and the fact that they said that they had like something like 48,000 different species they could get on there. And the fact that they brought them on, they said most of the animals probably came on as juvenile or infants. You know, normally you think of a massive elephant or a big giraffe. That's not what they brought. And they said they probably brought a juvenile elephant or a juvenile right. giraffe, much smaller. We don't typically think that by right. the way, but they probably came on as yeah. So it was, uh, it was, it was. It's amazing. It, it allows you to really see how this actually could have functioned in a functional way. And how many years did it take to build it? One hundred and twenty was about one hundred twenty years. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you think about that, and you say one hundred twenty years. Does that mean that they were maybe collecting some of the animals early? So yeah, I think a lot of people think it's like the Pied Piper. Oh, right, yeah. You know, that Noah went out and he had a lute and he was playing <laughs> right. it and then the animals were following back or he's dropping peanuts along the right. the pathway. That's not the way it worked. It may not have. They may have just had all the animals and they were just they were breeding over the years and they were getting the babies and yeah, it, it probably was very different than what we think and it was. And what kind you know, the, the other thing is, what kind of animals were they? Because mm-hmm. they were pre-flood. Yeah. yeah. And they showed that in the ark exhibit. Yeah. 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 There were You've some seen people, it, too? Yeah. They, oh, wow. Some people said yeah. that they were surprised that they had dinosaurs like on Dinosaurs. Yeah. 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 Right. How could they do that? Well, hmm. you know. Yep. I know. I know what they tell you, but what they tell you isn't always the truth. That's right. Go That's to right. Rose, Texas. That's it. You got the footprint of the, of the dinosaur with the human footprint That's inside right. of it. You know, Go check that out. Yep. I've seen it up close. Have you? Person. I've I, never seen it. I had to go down and see it for myself to believe it, to be honest with uh-huh. you. And I was like, well, there's no <laughs> discussing that. Yeah. And right. why is that not on the news? And why is that not? That that one doesn't, piece of evidence could shut meet, down at all. Doesn't meet the narrative. Doesn't meet the narrative. Or, or the yeah. one thing that doesn't come into the narrative is it took billions of years for this to happen, but yet 65 million years ago, supposedly, an asteroid destroyed all life on Earth, and we had to start over. So really what they're telling you is it only took 65 million years to evolve. But they'll tell you – but they don't talk about that part. It was really billions. Well, no. Yeah. You said you were trying to tell us something significant happened yeah. 65 million years ago. All right. With all blah, of that blah, said blah. and done, exactly. let's move on because I, I came across this story like last week. Mm-hmm. I was in D.C. when I sent this story to Scott and to Steve because I was familiar with uh, – what it was referring to uh there are people that will tell you in in judaism there are i don't know if it's the essenes or who it is uh, but believe that if a red calf is born heifer a heifer Mm -hmm. uh that it signifies the coming of the messiah now as a as a believer, we would say, okay, the, the Messiah is coming back. Mm-hmm. All right, he's coming back. Well, he's coming back for the Jews too. But the way they look at it, we just see it right. a tad bit differently. Yeah. All right, when he comes back this time. But the just last week or thereabouts, a red heifer. And I, if I read the article right, in the first time in two thousand years was born so i sent that to you guys said hmm into the world perhaps you know just (laughs) saying uh because there's some people believe that that's what it portends so i thought i said let's talk about that Mm. because i know if if i'm aware of it a lot of people are aware of it might be thinking about 
well is that really what it's saying so we could actually spend the entire show talking about this because there's there is a lot of different prophetic views on the meaning of this okay so i'm dropping it in your lap guys and good give us all the different ones that you can steve that it'd be interesting to scott steve is a more of the uh, prophecy guy so i I think what i'll do is i'll just kind of give you the the history of it and kind of let you know um what it what it is and then maybe steve can hit the um, prophetic side of it um according to um what we understand according to what the rabbis tell us is there have been only nine red heifers um that have ever been uh sacrificed and when we say a red heifer uh it has to be obviously a heifer it's a female um but when we say a red heifer i mean it's entirely red it has to be red through the hooves uh, the nose is red. Everything about this animal, and they go over. They go this over. Animal. It. That's correct. Hair by hair. That's right. And you, they are not allowed to sacrifice the heifer until the heifer is one year old. So what they do is they, I don't know if it's weekly or every three days or where it is, but they go over the animal. And what will disqualify it is if they find more than, or they find three or more hairs that are that are black or white. So in other words, if it has th- if it has any other color, as, uh, as little as three hairs, it will be disqualified as being. Now, there have been other uh, red heifers born, um, um, but none of them have been – they've all been disqualified. So this one here – For some reason. Yeah, they've been disqualified okay. typically because they've found some uh, different colored hairs on them. So this one is born in Israel. It's fully, uh, fully red. Now, the thing about the red heifer is that it was essential for cleansing – um, the reason why it's so important to the Jewish people today is, let's just say, for example, they want to have a third temple, which you know a lot of them do. Uh, even if they had every single thing of the re- of the temple prepared, they had all the bricks done, they had everything right. in place, they could not build it. Even if they had the spot where they could put it, the thing that would be holding it up is a red heifer. A red heifer has to be sacrificed in order to consecrate uh, the temple and to consecrate the people who would come into the temple, rather. And um, as a matter of fact, there's a verse of Scripture in um, the book of Hebrews and uh, in um, in chapter 9, and it actually says this. It says that the uh, – verse 22, it says, and oh, – go ahead and read verse 21. It says, um, <coughs> moreover, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels, and almost all things by the law are purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the part that's important here, it says, and almost all things are purged by blood. Okay. Well, if almost all things are purged by blood. It means not everything. Not everything. Now, but now without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But there is a difference between a cleansing and a and a, and a um, sacrifice for sin. So there's something out there that is needed to complete this holistic plan of redemption, and it's not blood. What type of animal would provide something that's not blood to complete this package? It's the red heifer. Okay, so it's the bridge, so to speak. Yes. Now, we Jesus actually – now, the rabbis also tell us this, that there have been nine. Moses sacrificed the first one, and then they go down the list of all of them that have been sacrificed throughout time. According to them, the tenth red heifer will be sacrificed by the Messiah. Well – when Jesus was here, nine had been sacrificed. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it freely. Jesus was the fulfillment. He became the 10th red heifer, if I can okay. say it that way. All right. And and I can go through a whole list of things that he did that fulfill the whole ideal of the red heifer. It's not a coincidence that when he was standing before 
Pilate that he was actually uh, so they, after they beat him he was so bloody he was covered. It wasn't it's not an accident. They covered him with a scarlet robe. They dressed him for the part of the red heifer. Now you know people see Jesus being so weak he can't carry the cross. He falls three times. And then the Bible goes to great detail to tell us the name of the man who picked up the cross and carried it for him. Why would the Bible take time Simon? to do that? Is that who you're talking about? Yes. The Cyrene or it's whatever? Like, yeah. Why would the Bible take time to tell us that? Well, according to the writings of the rabbis, what we understand this, they said if a red heifer is in the city of Jerusalem and the red heifer carries a burden on it outside the gate of Jerusalem, it is disqualified from being the red heifer. Jesus did not throw, fall down the cross going, eh, eh. I can't carry it. No, he deliberately threw himself back saying, I'm not going to carry it. And what happens, the Bible leads us up. On that third time he does it, the, the Romans are saying, fine, that's it. You, you carry it. So Jesus could leave Jerusalem without carrying the burden on him so he could continue to qualify as the red heifer sacrifice. Everything he did was perfect in becoming that uh, particular red heifer. I don't want to denominate all the time here, but every, I mean, all of this works out to be Jesus, they when uh, when when they put the the red heifer, they laid him upon um, an altar of wood to sacrifice him. They were then to burn the red heifer because they were actually going to use the ashes of the red heifer mixed with water to bring purification. But get mm-hmm. this: after they sacrificed the animal on uh, wood on top of the same hill that Jesus was crucified on, <laughs> after they burn it and they mix it. They have to take the ashes of that red heifer and they have to put it into a tomb that is clean. And does anybody want to guess how many days it has to stay in there before wow. it can come out? Three? Bam. <laughs> it has to stay in the tomb You're a genius. for three days before it's come out, before it can actually be used. I mean, Jesus was so perfect mm-hmm. in how he became the red heifer, fulfilled it perfectly so that he could not just give us the blood for the atonement of sin, but provide that other thing that blood did not do. And that was the uh, the water of the red heifer. Now, remember, when Jesus was stabbed in the side, what came out? Water. Blood and water. People say, well, that's because there was a second there, and the spirit hit. They tried to come up with some explanation. No, the reason why blood and water came out is because he was being both the sacrifice for sin and the water of the red heifer sacrifice to cleanse. And So, in, in, in short, it was a, a real animal. It was a female. It had to be red. Provide cleansing. Basically, it was cleansing people from being contaminated with death so they could go into the house of God. Jesus lived his life as the fulfillment of that 10th red heifer. He sacrificed himself just like the rabbi said he would, and he became that great holistic perpetuation for our sin and for our cleansing. And this is why you all, every Tuesday when we're on, Mm -hmm. talk about if you don't understand the Bible from its Hebrew roots, you miss some of the fullness of Scripture. That's right. We just miss a whole lot of fullness of Scripture in what you just told us, for sure. I mean, how many? I mean, who who really knew why he fell down carrying the cross? Everything he did, I thought he got tired, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a vast majority of I mean, people. Seriously, but there was a purpose for why he did everything that he did. And think about it: why would a man who was think about that? He was the beard was pulled out of his face. He didn't cry out. They whipped him with a with a whip full of bone and metal. Yeah, cat of nine tails. He didn't cry out. So here, this man is being brutally beaten. And he's so strong, Dave, there's no crying, no whimpering, yet he can't carry a piece of wood. Doesn't even make sense mm-hmm. unless he refused to carry that piece of wood. And that's exactly what he did. Why? Because he was not going to be disqualified from being that red heifer for us. All right. When we come back, we're going to turn it over to Steve. 
Steve's going to tell us that, you know, in Judaism, perhaps there's something about the future in it. Perhaps there's not. Yeah. We'll find out what Steve has to say to us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Don't forget about Applied Research, what they are asking for you to do. They want you to be part of their uh, clinical research studies they have going on. And I'm not going to sit here and read all of them to you today. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're interested in being part of one of these research studies, making a little extra money, helping to see um, perhaps a, a new medicine get out on the on the market, just go to ARC Arkansas. That's the letter A, the letter R, the letter C, and then Arkansas. It's one, le- one word, dot com. And then when you get there, you'll see all these different studies. It's got pull-down uh, uh, place that you can drop down the, uh, the list, and it'll tell you how old you have to be. It'll tell you, do you need to have, you know, be like have a diabetes? Do you, do you have to have nausea when, with it and things of that nature? There's, there's specific things that you have to have to meet the requirements to take part in some of these clinical research studies. If you meet those requirements... Uh, then you can put your name in there and say you'd like to be contacted about it. They'll call you and they'll talk to you about it. Or if you don't want to do it that way, you can do it the other way, which is give them a call, 501-954-7822. 501-954-7822. That's for Applied Research. All right, we continue on here on the Dave Ellswick Show we got two minutes. I'll let you start. Well, let, let's let Scott finish what sure. he was talking about, and then you can start when we come back. Okay. Great. Now, I, I neglected to say that one of the things about the uh, about the red heifer was this, is that whenever a red heifer was prior to the sacrifice, he would be brought into the city of Jerusalem from wherever he was outside the city, and then he had to be examined uh, in detail, and he had to be examined for four days before – I say he – the, the heifer had to be examined for four days before it was sacrificed. So it shouldn't be a coincidence or surprise to anyone that Jesus was brought into the city of Jerusalem four days before he was actually um, crucified. And what did they do in that four days is they examined him, they interrogated him, they looked him over to find out uh, everything about him. And that's exactly what they do with the red heifer. And for everybody who says that it was all a scam, <laughs> You know, here's the key that I don't get, and especially now that I hear this. Mm-hmm. Think of the minutia yes. that we're talking about here. Right. All right? right. I don't think that just randomly happens. No. The odds This was of, a movement of God. Even, even if somebody tried to go back and read into the story and then write the gospel separately or write the New Testament as some sort of mythological story – they would have to know or create all of this out of all of these old books. Mm-hmm. Or you take the fact that this is exactly what it means. He did exactly what he needed to do, and all these other things prove the validity of the Bible. That's all right. what all these stories do. All right, so when we come back, and this this red heifer I thought was a big deal when I saw the story. Yeah. And it's a, it was a throwaway story. I was on Drudge. It was uh-huh. just a throwaway story, and I saw it, and I went – Wait a second. Yeah. And I, I read the story, and I sent it to these guys. I said, we got to talk about it. We're going to do it when we come back. What about the book of Daniel? Find out next. Hey, before we uh, get back to the show, let me remind you about Holland Bottom Fresh Vegetables, fruits right off the farm. Holland Bottom Farm right out on 321 in Cabot. Choose from a great selection of okra and tomatoes still. Jalapeno peppers, sweet lunchbox peppers, red, yellow, orange, and green bell peppers. How about some cayenne peppers? You know, let's uh, spice it up a little bit. 
some yellow squash. Holland Bottom Farms has those delicious peaches for you, blackberries, Robin Hood honey taken from the hives located right on the farm means that uh, the bees use the flowers and the plants around the area. Should be good for your, uh, you know, problems that you have with allergies. Uh, Eat healthy with Holland Bottom Farm and Cabot off Highway 321. Open Monday through Saturday, 9 until 6 p.m., 9 a.m., 6 p.m., closed on Sundays. I shop there often. All right, back here we come with the Bible guys. Uh, 8230965. If you got a question, we've been talking about basically one subject. There is one other question that was sent in, and we'll get to that as well. But the majority of the show today being taken up with this whole thing about the red heifer calf. And there's a reason for it. If you listen to the first half hour, you'll uh, get the whole, you know, story about the crucifixion and all the things that went on about uh, before the crucifixion and how that ties in with that red heifer. And then Daniel has some prophecy in it with the red heifer, and we're going to turn that part over to Steve. Okay, Daniel 9.27, which is where a lot of people get the view for this, is where it comes from. And it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And so many interpret this to be some future Antichrist who will bring peace. He will allow the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. Uh, but sometime in the middle of this supposed week-long covenant that he will bring an end to sacrifice. And so in order for there to be an end to sacrifice, there has to be a start to sacrifice. In order to be a start to sacrifice, the temple has to re- be rebuilt. A red heifer has to be offered uh, for the cleansing of the priests and, the, and, and whatnot. So if that interpretation is true, then this is a – an extremely significant event, if that interpretation for is Christians true. and Jews, for Christians and right. Jews, because uh, even Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four, He said, "When you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel standing in the holy place, then know that its destruction is near." The destruction was speaking of Jerusalem, and that destruction came in seventy A.D. Um, one of the um, I don't know Vespasian, I think. Uh, Titus. Titus Titus was the one who had sex with a prostitute on the altar in 70 A.D. That's pretty defiling of the temple. On top of a Torah uh, scroll. Yep, on top of a Torah scroll. Wow. Yeah. So, you want to make sure he got everybody ticked off. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah that, you can't get much more of an extreme violation of that. Um, and so there has been a form of a fulfillment of this prophecy in that way, but does that mean that there's a possibility of a secondary fulfillment? There is. And if that interpretation is true and there is going to be a rebuilt temple, then this needs to happen. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. And that's really my view on a lot of prophecies is the wait and see uh, because it's not meant to be uh, – prophetic words are not meant to be an exact roadmap. Or building block. They're meant to be a foreshadow, and then when they begin to get fulfilled or fulfilled before your very eyes, then they begin to make sense to us. But that's okay. really the, the main reason that people are excited, both Jews and Christians, because Jews are waiting for the third temple, and Jew, and Christians are waiting because they believe that's going to be the Antichrist, which is the beginning of the seven years prior to the return of the Lord. Sounds like he has a little bit of your pan theology there, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it all pan yeah. out. Well, it's I, I believe that. Yeah. And, 
you know, will there be wars and destructions? There always have been wars. And you said there would be wars and rumors of wars and, and famines and desolate places and so forth. So, yeah, for sure. You've probably heard us talk about this before, but we've talked about there's a Messiah son of Joseph and a Messiah son of David in Jewish writing. And many of the people were crying out to Jesus when he walked by and they said, son of David, son of David. So mm-hmm. the, the Jewish world at that time was waiting for the son of David, but nobody was looking for the Messiah son of Joseph, the suffering servant who would take on the sins of the world. And many missed him because they thought they had their theology figured out. So I do not take this emphatic, absolute view about prophetic things because I don't want to miss, just in case it is possible, it is rare, but I have been wrong before. (laughs) (laughs) Just ask his wife, Casey. She'll tell you how many times. I think she has a list, actually. I've seen that list. It's like the 67th book of the Bible. It's significant. (laughs) I'm trying to think. There's something else that I that had come up, and I wanted to bring it up with you, but um, it, it eludes me right now. If it comes up before the end of the hour, I'll ask you. We had another question. Mm, yes. And uh, I'll let you pick up on it, uh, Scott. Okay. Elizabeth read it to you. It was something mm. that was sent to us on uh, Facebook. Right. Uh, the question was um, she wanted to know what the significance was uh, of the um, the dance related to Sukkot. And I'll just go ahead and, t- and that was the way the, the question was worded. The word Sukkot uh, is a Hebrew word, and it means uh, tabernacle or booth uh, or booths. It's a plural word. Um, and um, right now, uh, we are approaching uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles will begin officially on the 23rd of September. We've actually started, as a matter of fact, at our church. We started last Sunday. We started a series on uh, Sukkot. And, and um, this is the time... Uh, when you look at it in in a Hebrew mm-hmm. reflection, would be the equivalent. This is you guys have to give cut me some slack here. Sure, of Christmas, kind of. You know, I mean, we do this. We do the birth of Christ in December, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of when people think traditionally, historically, when Christ was born. Yes, he would. He would. Okay. He would have been born during the feast of. Uh, Tabernacles. I'm, I'm not saying they had a Christmas tree in the manger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah no, they. That's what is believed. You do if you work out the numbers, it shows up being him being born at the time of uh, Tabernacles. So uh, that's a little spoiler alert to everybody listening. Um, but <laughs> but but yeah. Uh, so we're 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 studying this. We'll be studying this all week uh, uh, at our church, and it's significant because um, the um, so many things in the Bible happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, you know, just to give, just to name just a couple of them. Um, you know, when Jesus wrote in the sand, the the was writing in the sand, the Lady Cotton Duttry, that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. When Peter said, Let's build three tabernacles and stay, that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. When Jesus commissioned his uh his apostles, uh the seventy to go out and to uh, evangelize, that happened at the Feast uh of Tabernacles. The it when uh, Jesus de- declared, Anyone who's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean so much in his life happened attending this feast and then wonderfully enough the bible tells in the book of zechariah it says in the millennial kingdom when messiah is ruling and reigning on the earth all the world will come and celebrate the feast of tabernacles this thing didn't end when messiah showed up uh it's an ongoing continuous thing that we're celebrating now and we're going to continue to celebrate the millennial millennial kingdom i mean how important must this be if god says we're going to celebrate this even in the uh, Millennial Kingdom. As a matter of fact, he goes – because some people believe the Millennial Kingdom is utopia. 
Messiah is ruling and reigning, everything's great. <coughs> but that's not so because he actually says, and in the same verse in Zechariah, says, and if your nation will not come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Bible says God will shut the rain down over your nation and bring drought upon your country. So even in the millennial reign, how important must this feast be for God to execute judgment in the feast of tab? In the fe- I mean, in the time of the millennial reign, over a feast. Well, it seems to me that everybody should that's done any kind of study. Now, this is pretty simple part of mm-hmm. eschatology. Is that during that reign, it's not perfection because some people turn their back on Christ even yep. then. That's right. Yep. That's right. And those that will be known because they won't they won't participate in what in the feast. It's amazing yeah. how the feast still come around. But uh, it's a, it, the rabbis say if you've not experienced this time of feast, you don't know what joy is like. I mean, this is the most joyful time. Why? Because we're celebrating God tabernacling among us, God dwelling among us. His presence is here, and if God's presence mm. is here, then everything is great. So we God celebrate as man. <laughs> you know, in anyway. John 1, when it says he came and dwelt amongst men, it yes. actually is the Greek word for tabernacle. Tabernacles. Really? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And John knew he was in. So back to the question, the there are there are seven feasts of, of the Lord, um, and is it three or four of them, Steve, that are hugs? Um, I think there's four. Mm. I think there are four of these feasts that are actually called a a chag, and the word chag in Hebrew um, is a is a, is a fest, festival or a feast, but it also has the uh, meaning a dance. But it has the, the the wording in here is about a circle. So basically, what happens is this would be called chag sukkot, which means the the festival of tabernacles. But the word chag tells you you're going to be dancing. Okay, so this is the reason why. And the Jewish dance, they, they all get together, put their arms around, and they go in a circle. Dance in a circle. That's it, yeah. yeah. So it, you got it, Dave. That's, That's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I pulled that out of my butt. No, no, no. My, <laughs> my, my Baptist friends are not going to be too happy with this, but you know what this means? Because Jesus was a good Jewish boy, he was the best dancer right. out there. That means he danced, I think it's three, he danced at the three major dancing feasts. He would have been the best dancer. And get this, we think break dancing came around in the 80s. We have some black and white photos of Jewish rabbis dancing, spinning on their heads, doing the break dancing moves during the Feast of Tabernacles. They used to juggle. I mean, it was a party. Yeah, when that happened. So the whole idea with the feast is a, it's a circle feast. They dance in a circle because the word chag means um, it's actually a commandment. This so, is one of my bucket yeah, list things. I want to be honest with you. It's one of my bucket list things is get to get to Israel. Yeah, and to dance like that in Israel. Wow. And you know what? At the Feast of Tabernacles, this is so huge in Israel. It's also called the Feast of the Ingathering mm-hmm. of the Nations. The mm-hmm. Feast of the Nations. Even to this day, Dave. Hundred, maybe hundreds, maybe it is a hundred thousand or so people from all over the world descend on Jerusalem, and they walk up the streets to the Temple Mount carrying the flags of their nations as they come to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Even to this day, I got to get over there. I got to see this. The Feast of Tabernacles, part of this, unbelievable. That'd be part of this. Okay, it was a command. It says in Leviticus 23, in verse 40, it says, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. If you do not rejoice, you are sinning. It's just that simple. Dude, I can party. I'm just saying, I can party. It gives you seven days to reset that 
your body, reset your mind to just rejoice. No complaining, no murmuring. In our church, we say, we say, okay, everybody, we have seven days of fellowship, of feasting. People eat outside, invite friends over. There's no murmuring, no complaining. Seven days of praising. We don't think bad thoughts. We cast them down. We don't complain. We reset ourselves acting as if God is dwelling among us. We know he is, but sometimes you have to walk it out. Okay, so we've got to take a break. When we come back, I was reading something the other day saying that in Hebrew, the word carpenter really looks like architect. Mm. So I want to talk to you about that. Okay. Was mm. Jesus a carpenter or was he an architect? Cool. We'll talk about that when we come back. Here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, so I come across articles, and I, I, I make little mental notes about them. Uh, first, before I go back to this thing about carpenter and architect, Rosh Hashanah, which was yesterday, if, if anybody wanted to know why Robert Steinbach wasn't on, he couldn't come on because it was a religious mm. day for Jewish folks. Mm-hmm. Explain what it was all about. I'll, I'll introduce it, and I'll let Steve do the prophetic thing on the side there. It's uh, it, it's uh, called by the rabbis Rosh Hashanah, which means Rosh means head, head of the year. It's the head of the civil year. Uh, but this is not a biblical phrase. Uh, biblically, it's no, known as Yom Teruah. And uh, Yom Teruah means the, the day of the blowing or the day of the trumpets. Rabbis have taken it and renamed it and made it the head of the civil year. There's actually, the biblically, the new year is in um, March, April time, the month of Nisan. But the rabbis have given us this day uh, as the uh, as the head of the physical year where you would count the calendar. And they call it Rosh Hashanah. And with that, I'll throw it over to Steve. But the eschatology on this day is is incredible. Yeah, yeah. So the, anybody who's ever studied anything prophetic knows that there's trumpets blowing all over the place yes. when Jesus comes back. And putting, if you really want to study prophetic things, uh, go and study these feasts. Study what happens when the day of blowing begins. And then know that according to tradition, it's when the kings were coronated. Uh, knowing that when Yeshua said, I go to prepare a place for you, and then the bridegroom's announced the coming, that they're blowing trumpets, that the bridegroom is coming. Uh, but this, I believe, is during this period of time, because up to this point, for 30 days prior, in what's known as the month of Elul, they blow the trumpet every day. And just prior to the new moon, which begins this um, this feast, they stop blowing trumpets. So for two to three days, there's no trumpets blowing. So Quiet. they're waiting for the new moon to come. And so for uh, so nobody knows the day or the hour in which this trumpet is going to sound. And when this trumpet sounds, that lets you know that it's the seventh day of the first month, and then you are ten days out from Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then then in ancient times. They would blow the trumpet every hour for the next 10 days to let you know that it's approaching rapidly. Again, no man knows the day nor the hour, but yet there's trumpets blowing for 10 solid days to let you know that the Day of Atonement's coming. Then the Day of Atonement comes, you go before God, there's a sacrifice, you fast, and you have your sins atoned for. And at the conclusion of that service, there's another blowing of trumpets, a single long blast, that concludes that, and that's when they also count the Jubilee years. So it's – I speculate that it's going to be sometime during this period of time that we will see the return of the Lord because there's so many trumpets being blasted and so many references to trumpets being blasted in Corinthians and Thessalonians and Revelation. Well, how about the trumpets people are hearing and nobody knows where they're coming from? Yeah, I've seen that on on, uh, on 
I mean, I've been reading all kinds of stuff. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's false. I'm just saying I've read it. Yeah. Well, you know, if Jesus, I mean, everything that major has happened in Christendom has happened on Jewish feast day. I mean, Jesus died at Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He was raised from the dead on the feast of of, uh, first fruits. He sent the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. That's four out of the seven major feasts. What's the next one on the list? The Feast of Trumpets. If you fulfill the first four to the day to the letter, he's going to fulfill the last three. And the next one's the Feast of Trumpets. And what happens then? The king arrives, Messiah is coronated, the people are, are judged, and they're ready to go into the afterlife. So when, it's 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 set up perfectly. When you look at what is, according to the rabbinic tradition, what happens during this season is the books of judgment are open, the books of the books of the law. The books of the righteous and the books of the wicked, and they're the books like of these the, the scrolls that we hear about in Revelation. They are that that whole thing that happens in Revelation, like seventeen through nineteen, mm-hmm. almost mirrors identically what happens during this period of time according to rabbinic tradition. Okay, so when this trumpet lets us no know, no surprise from me on this. No, right? <laughs> this trumpet let trumpet lets us know that that day's approaching. You better get right. So you have ten days to get right before you go into the judgment chamber. Yeah. It's God's mercy to let you know that I'm coming. You better get right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let me just ask this next question, sure. and then I'm going to let you guys talk about the school. Okay. All right. So that you can study about what we've been talking about. Sure. Uh, I saw a, uh, a article written. Gentleman was taking, you know, that Christ was a carpenter, and saying that that's kind of a misnomer because they say in the Hebrew. It it doesn't mean carpenter. It really means architect. So I'll ask you all: to, Is that true? Is it false? Is it just so what or what is it? Well, really, a, a carpenter in the, the time of Jesus, he he did a lot of things. He didn't just work in our mind. He, you're a worker of wood, but he worked with stone. He worked. He would have worked with all these other things, and it could be that he also designed what he was actually building. So. Could it be seen as that was a part of it? Yes. Would it be exclusively just architectural work? Probably not. Um, he was um, he was more than likely uh, a guy who did a lot of different things, and, arch- and architecturally designing may have been one of them. Um, but for the most part, he would have um, worked with what uh, either he designed or his dad or somebody else, or I mean his earthly father. But um, so I, I think it's a little stretch to read into it. But also, there's an interesting. Uh, little twist to this whole idea of carpenter and um and that is that even to this very day uh in the synagogue whenever rabbis are discussing an issue and they come across a verse and it creates a quarrel and they can't fix the problem so these rabbis are arguing back and forth and back and forth and they cannot resolve the the problem what they do is they begin to all cry out for the carpenter so they cry out for the carpenter to come. Why? Because the carpenter comes in and fixes things. Oh, okay. So it's just possible. It's just possible that Jesus' dad was not a worker, wood, or an architect, but he was a scholar of scholars who solved biblical issues among the sages. Well, when you consider that his father was God. Yeah. Well, 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 I'm, yeah. Sa- I'm saying his earthly father. Earthly father. Okay. I apologize. Okay. I apologize. Yeah. So Joseph may not have just been a carpenter, but he may have been a scholar of scholars. And that might have been the home, the ideal home for Jesus to be born into, hmm. a man who knew the scriptures better than any of the rabbis in town. Yep. Well, maybe that's what this guy was referring to then. Well, the word that's used for carpenter, it means so many different things. It, it means carpenter, it means workman, craftsman, engraver, uh, artificer, smith maker, uh, just a skillful worker. 
So it, it's not just one thing. It's a good Hebrew word. It has multiple meanings, multiple facets, and application determines it. So he very well could have been an architect. He was for sure um, um, either an engraver or a stone worker, or it's quite possible, like Pastor Scott said, that, the, that we completely missed the idiom, and the context of it was that he was actually the scholar of scholars. Yeah, and it would be an idiom. So it wouldn't, you know, we use, you know, words that don't actually mean that. Carpenter would be an idiom, and it meant uh, a fixer of things, which would have okay. been scripturally speaking. Yeah. All right, let's finish up by saying, you know, you heard a lot talked about today. Would you like to learn more about it? We've got a minute left here. Tell everybody where they can learn all of the stuff that you guys are talking about. The American Institute, and you can find it at AmericanInstitute.org. Uh, we always tell people what makes this different than um, what people typically call seminaries. We don't call this a seminary. We call it an institute. Uh, it is because in most seminaries you learn what the denomination teaches. Um, they don't teach you what the Bible meant to who it was written, when it was written, the context, the language, the geography, the historical setting, the political setting. They tell you that you get a degree in their theology. That's what makes this different is you study in the context, and we teach you what they believed in the first century, not what somebody in the 17th century believes. All right. AmericanInstitute.org. That's it. All right. That's where you go. These guys will be back with you next Tuesday. I'll be on vacation. Carl Kimball will be sitting in. But it'll still be all the great stuff that you're learning. We'll take a break until tomorrow at 2 o'clock. I'll see you then. Dave Ellswick, Dave Ellswick Show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 